BBC Five Live. Hi, Simon seems to know what's going on Mayo, and Mark has yet to be determined if he knows what's going on Kermode. Pardon? I'm writing to find out, says Andy in Bristol. Hang on, have we started recording the podcast? The answer to this following question. At the beginning of most podcasts from your bad oh, selves, there will be a point during the preamble where Mark, Mark says, says, are we recording? To which Simon will reply, yes, we are. How is it that Simon knows when the show is being taped and Mark doesn't? Oh, I can tell you. Is Simon just more observant, says Andy in Bristol? No, I'll tell you why. Because Simon has got the cheaty headphones on. And Robin, I don't have a talkback button, right? So I can't talk to Robin. So I can only talk to Robin through Simon. And Robin talks to Simon and tells Simon stuff that he doesn't tell me. The answer, Andy, is yes, I am just more observant. I'm just a turn. You... I wonder what you're going to say then. I am the host of the show. Do you think I was going to say after the, after the birdsong bird scandal song. of last <laughs> week? Was gonna be... There was a lot of birdsong on last week's podcast. It was super, super special. Birdsong. It was. It was like tweet of the day. It was just... A... Birds sing. It was like that Mary Poppins sequence when they go into the drill. They go and have a jolly olly day. So, yeah, I mean, basically, I kick, it's like I kick things off. Yes. I have the ball and then I pass it to you. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a podcast which has begun with me? Would you like to try? No. Well, we've started already, so no. But I, I wonder whether, has there ever been a podcast that started with me? Um, I... Or at least knowingly. I bet there have been some podcasts that Robin hilariously started with me. Not yeah, yeah, probably because you were off on a comedy ramble about Nixon or something like that. You can probably talk about Nixon without. It's funny, being, I look but... back on the on the Nixon years now with a sense of glowing melancholia. Those are the good old. Yeah, days. they were. You know, nostalgia administration. Yeah, can you? We can. You can talk about Nixon and not be bird songed. I'm just checking that. I'm getting a well. It depends what you say. <laughs> kind of look. It's okay so far. No bird song. Okay. Threatened. Okay. Can I say? That will, I'm afraid, that will have been bird song. Okay. All right. Um, thanks very much, Steve, for all the emails, which have been most entertaining and slightly strange and very, very weird. Really? Yes. Okay. Jonathan, for example. Jonathan Keenan. Hello. Dear Smith Sierra Morrissey and post-Smith Sierra Morrissey, Despite my long-term listener status, I'm always about two weeks or so behind the pod, and lately I've found it very amusing to hear about the various whereabouts of Donald Gleeson and Margot Robbie <laughs> and their run-ins with fellow wit detainees. Okay, yeah. I was enjoying some lunch yesterday in your run-of-the-mill hipster restaurant in Dublin, listening to episodes with Chuckles, when Simon was giving an update on the latest run-in with Margot in a first-class plane flight. Simon then mentioned that he thought that the episode with Donald had magical properties of its own. Yes, no less than five minutes later, as I'm chomping away on my overpriced salad, I nearly choked as none other than Donald Gleeson no. came in and sat down no. with a lady, unfortunately <laughs> sorry, not... Sorry, sorry, do that again. I love the way you say that. With a lady, <laughs> unfortunately not Margot Robbie, right beside me. I had to call on every bone in my body to not start rambling on to him like a madman. Oh, why? About what should've... was going on in my ears, and thankfully my sane aside won out. I grant you Dublin is very small and I've seen Donald about five times over the last few years in this area, but it was the combination of both the pod and him together that freaked me out. I now agree, I agree with Simon that Donald and Margot have fitted some sort of tracker to the pod to seek out Wittertainees. <laughs> what they plan to do with that power remains to be seen. That's fantastic. It is, it is absolutely. Some, somebody did, I mean, I was in a train station and somebody came up to me and showed me the, 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 pod, the podcast that I think they were listening on the podcast to the conversation about... 
magically making people appear. But magically making you and me appear isn't very magical. No, that doesn't count. No, it has to be somebody properly famous, like Donald Gleeson or like Margot Robbie or like uh, Robbie or like uh, Chuckles Branagh. Well, we did set a particular task uh, for listeners uh, over the forthcoming seven days. Remind me. To test if uh, if anyone saw either Brian Cox. Yes, that's right. And if they did, they had to say... Well, um, did they have to say a special phrase? Didn't we Didn't we come up with it? Or did we not come up anyway. with a special phrase? But either Brian Cox would do fine. Mike Elston, uh, I'm now convinced that Wittertainment has been granted special status by the laws of fate. It is, in fact, possible that your show is the strand of DNA that runs through the entire cosmos. I've come to this conclusion as follows. A couple of weeks ago... Joe Twyman wrote into the show describing how, having been listening to the podcast featuring Margot Robbie at the aeroplane station, he actually <laughs> he actually met Margot Robbie on the flight. That in itself is pretty amazing, but it doesn't end there. For the last few days, I've been at a conference. The purpose of the conference is to bring together people from entirely different walks of life to exchange ideas. Okay. Early on in the conference... I found myself sitting next to an amazing person who I knew nothing about, and given the different circles we move in, I would be monumentally unlikely to meet. Yes, it was the aforementioned Joe Twyman. No! We stumbled this in- is brilliant. This we is stumbled into brilliant. our collective membership of the church during the conversation, <laughs> checked ourselves out on the app, and we'll be friends for life. Tickety tonk to your bad selves, Joe and Joe's mum. Anyway, so that's Mike. Anyway, we continue in the same vein. Well, it gets weirder. Graham in Winchester, you have clearly unleashed something beyond our understanding. Having marvelled at tales of the sightings of Gleeson, Robbie and Gallagher, I have to report that it's happened again. Squeezing onto a busy train from Winchester to London last Saturday, I had to sit... You're bringing me down. ..in a separate carriage from my wife. To pass the solitary hour, I turned to the podcast of the previous day's show. We rolled into Clapham Junction just as your chat with Toby Jones was coming to an end. Off we got, changed for, changed for Vauxhall, aiming for the Victoria line. A Vauxhall and not ten minutes after pausing the podcast, as we stumbled down the packed stairway, who should be trying to make his way up to the platform but Toby Jones? <laughs> I gawped in disbelief at what this meant. I had had a witter vision. So just stop it now, it's spooky. Witter vision. I like that word. So Toby just appeared, you know... That's very good. That's very good. So, but but nobody has yet seen either of the Brian Coxes. An email from Stuart Penny. Ah, I'm so glad I brought that up. Dear Simon and Mark, LTL, first time correspondent, 15 years, a colonial commoner. Listening to your 10th November show this morning as a podcast on the ferry from Manly to Sydney. It's a beautiful morning. Less than 30 minutes later, I'm looking at Brian Cox, the astrophysicist Brian Cox, not the Hannibal Lecter Brian Cox, on stage as the keynote speaker at a conference I was attending. I'm in row six thinking, now there's a coincidence. (laughs) I have phone photo proof available. He gave a great speech in 30 minutes explaining the Big Bang, quantum mechanics and Einstein's theory of relativity. Have another run at that. Around 3,000 lesser mortals. Anyway, so we, we gave out the challenge and Stuart Penny... In Australia, found Brian Cox. Genius. There was something that you said that they should say to them, and it was something really aggressive, like "Oi, cut it out." Oh, really? Was that? What it was something like that. Yeah, it was. It was one of the, those moments in which the the mask of niceness slipped. Well, you see, the thing is, Donald particularly and Margot also are unaware of these Witter visions, and I think they. It would be. I think the next person to have a Witter vision should probably chance their arm of going up to Sir Chuckles or Donal or Toby 
and say, excuse me, you're my Witavision and I claim my £10. That's very good. And, they, and they, are, they do have to give you £10. Yes, the celebrity... The celebrity is... has to give you £10. That's how it works. And, and, and if, they, if... if they don't have cash, take a, take a cheque or their home address. Yeah. Does, it, does this apply to, to you and me? What? Well, if people stop us in the street and say, hello, we, we have to give them £10, okay, we are very, very quickly going to be out of money. This maybe isn't a very good idea. No, no, it, it applies to everybody other than us. As we said earlier on, it's not a whistle vision if you see us. John Delphin, <laughs> just finally, whilst listening to your podcast, approximately one half second after I filled in parking in the Saturday Times Jumbo crossword, you read the letter from the fellow eating his parking. Now, John, I don't think that counts as a spooky thing particularly in comparison with our... Brian Cox, Toby Jones, Donald Gleeson, Witavision, spectacular. Maybe this is an era of mysterious things. Maybe we're all seeing visions. Maybe it's the end times, Mark. Anyway, we're here for a, an unbelievable two hours, during which Mark is going to uh, thumb his way through various movies, including... Uh, Justice League, uh, Good Time, Ingrid Goes West... Film stars don't die in Liverpool, and you will be speaking to... Well, John Lithgow, who has been in so many films and TV series that we've all watched over the years, and he's never come on the show before. No. I, I suppose... We, the, the show wasn't going when Footloose first came out. No, that's true, and he's been around for many decades, of course, but he, he doesn't normally lead a film, and so therefore he doesn't usually get offered to us as a guest, but he's one of the stars of Daddy's Home too. I missed Daddy's Home, but I kind of caught up quite quickly. You were able to fill in the back. So I see, I, I've seen Daddy's Home, but I haven't seen Daddy's Home too. It's, it's a treat. <laughs> well, I, don't, I, I wouldn't wish to presume. That's going on the poster. It's a treat, Simon Mayo, BBC Radio 5. He said it, he can't take it back. Um, Jenny Litton has been on. Uh, greetings from the children in need cubbyhole of your church. For the past ah. few years, excepting last year, I'm not going to say who dropped the ball, but it wasn't me, you've been kind enough to give shout-outs to me and my sister on Children in Need Day. From Fozzie Bear to Minions Impressions and the quite wonderful monologue from Nicolas, your studio engineer, you've given us both great shout-outs and the world's best phone ringtones. I promise I'm completely co-compliant. They never go off in the cinema. Whilst these ringtones make the spotting a fellow listener game a lot easier. <laughs> I've not yet been listening to a podcast whilst magically in the presence of the person you're interviewing or just mentioned in passing. Though a lot of people have, Jenny. Uh, perhaps my powers of entertainment need an upgrade, but in lieu of actually meeting the wonderful, magnificent and ever-cheerful Twix Eater himself, I was wondering if you could possibly play my sister a Sir Kenneth Branagh chuckle in exchange for a donation to children in need. It would probably be... January by the time she actually listens to it as she's currently somewhere in September but I know it will cheer us both to hear a chuckle of the very best kind so I, how much do you think this is worth? What, how much per chuckle? Yeah, what it means we're going to play a nice little... Ten or a chuckle yeah, yeah. Well, think? she didn't say per chuckle, she just, it's a donation for the chuckle Well then a tenner for a tenner for, a tenner for, tenner for your chuckles mate Is that what you Penny gonna... for the guy, tenner for the chuckle Alright so, uh, and may maybe other people will be moved as well to, to donate yes. in the same way as Jenny, because their life will be lifted and some light shone into their worlds by hearing this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I, yes, okay. So, Ken, you're on. Trip to <laughs> <Dad>. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be. the one at the end. That's particularly. That's got to be worth the 10. We have it again.
Yes. Now this is another ten pounds. Another ten. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I, yes. Okay. So Ken, you're on. Trip to Russia. Yes. <laughs> it's like a horse whinnying at the end. Yeah, it, was, it was like a horror. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Omond, um, proud member of the church here. Just listened to your letter from Claire Doan who took baby Barney to see Hitchcock's lifeboat and was asking for other strange baby cinema film choices. Uh, my do- and also there was uh, a viewing of Mother, which was not yes. a great yeah. mother-baby screening. Yeah. My daughter Louie, short for Eloise, also recently turned one. And whilst we haven't been able to go to the cinema for some time now, she's not one for staying still, we thoroughly enjoyed it in the early days, attending the Babes in Arms screenings at our local Palace Cinema at Westgarth in Melbourne, Australia. Right. Our first cinema visit with Louis was to see The Light Between the Oceans. Beautiful film, but for a brand new mother, because Louis was not even a week old, it was quite distressing. Oh, yes. And I found myself holding her very tightly and sobbing quietly through much of the film yeah. with my husband squeezing my knee firmly, I expect for his comfort as well as mine. Yeah. We had a further surprise on our first Babes in Arms visit. We were prepared for the pram jams, the crying babies and the audible poo-splosions. <laughs> Which is obviously that's what you you know you yeah. you know that's going to happen. Yeah. What we were not prepared for was the surprising number of patrons with no children. I assume due to the reduced cost of the ticket, as well as a complete disregard for the code. We expected some reasonable infringements, crying babies and cooing, but during our first visit, we were alarmed to hear a light grinding sound to our right. When we looked over, we found an older woman without a child with a three-course picnic arrayed on the chairs around her. The grinding sound was her adding fresh pepper to her sandwich. (laughs) But where normally we would have been quite put off by this serious (laughs) breach of code, we were far too amused at the time, and it was a welcome relief from the crying. Anyway, a shout-out to my beautiful husband, Trent, who introduced me to your good selves and your bad selves. And thank you uh, both for keeping him relatively sane a few years back when he was completing his film theory PhD, which I have subtitled Werner Herzog, He's Just a Guy. So, hello to Jason, you're a fabulous Starfleet captain. That's a very good Douglas Adams reference. He's just a guy. He's just some guy. They feel Bieber Brooks, he's just some guy. Oh, I'm sure that's what that is. I'm sure that's a, Yeah, I'm sure that that's, that's what but, that is. Can I say on the subject of... Hang on, but you surely you, you, you can't go into a mother and baby screening yeah. without a baby, because that just makes it... A mother screening. Yeah, or just a... Or just a screening. It's just a... Just a non-coke... Can I say on the subject of Poosplosion? Yeah. Somebody... and I, It should be a movie franchise, shouldn't it? <laughs> I'm sure it is. Um, somebody tweeted me, and I for, forgive me for not remembering uh, who it was, saying that they had been to see William Freakin' Sorcerer, which I've been going on about. You have. Um, and they said... Whilst carrying a loaded nappy full of poo splosion from the baby to the to the bin, they were reminded of the bridge scene from Sorcerer. What happens in the bridge? Well, in which uh, you know a truck full of highly expl- highly uh, volatile nitroglycerine oh. has to tread its way across this bridge, and, and lest terrible things result. Martin Clark in Aberdeen, but we're going to do the box office top ten in just a moment. Whenever you, whenever you're ready. This, this is quite an interesting okay. email, which I think will appeal to you. Yes. All right. Um, I'm a medium-term listener, first-time emailer, winner of the coolest haircut class of '98. Being a member of Clergy Corner, I, can't, I, I cannot imagine what the coolest haircut looked like in 1998. Which is 98. I imagine it's 1998. No, no, but I'm just trying to think what a cool haircut was in 1998. Um, I would. What were you? What were you sporting in 1998? Pretty much the same. Pretty same. Now. What about me? Exactly the same. Yeah. Same shape. <laughs> Although slightly thicker and and darker. 
Being a member of Clergy Corner, I regularly have the privilege of engaging with people of different ages and backgrounds as they walk through the various profound highs and lows that we all encounter in life. Yeah. I'm regularly struck by the darkness that so many people face week by week. Loneliness, illness, relational strife, to name just a few. With that backdrop, I'm always fascinated by the way Mark speaks about horror movies, especially the ones he seems to most appreciate, how they leave him deeply unsettled and uncomfortable, and how they often, quote, stay with him for days after. Most recent example was his review of The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yes. Would Mark be so kind as to get his philosophising on for us so he can take us to a deeper level of understanding as to why such a horror experience is a positive one and one worth actively seeking out in a world of much uncertainty and strife where so many of us are already battling forces or at least apparently not at all fake news reports of chaos and evil one might argue that very few of us need that extra dose of darkness in our lives and yet i do appreciate week by week the glimpse we get of mark's spirit of life and hope so i would love to more fully understand this pursuit and appreciation of these deeply troubling feelings which are after all merely the result of just a bunch of still images shown one after the other to give the illusion of movement can i give you a serious answer to this question yeah well i think Martin is after us. I mean, it's okay. No, if, no, it's fine. It's an, inter- it's an interesting yeah, it philosophical is. So, point. So here is the, the, the serious answer. To this um, I did a docu- I've made several documentaries about horror films. I did one several years ago in which we asked a whole load of horror filmmakers, you know, what what they thought people got out of horror, and the answer that came up quite a lot that Wes Craven used this phrase that horror is boot camp for the soul. He talked about how basically what happens is that in a, in, whilst watching a horror movie, you you put yourself through a bunch of challenges in an essentially safe environment. So you scare yourself, but it's safe. You're not going to come to any physical harm. Uh, I've heard a number of filmmakers talk about that. Stephen King has talked about the thrill of scaring yourself in a safe roller coaster environment. That it's you know again the sort of key to it is is the safety element of it. My own feeling about it is slightly different. I've heard that argument put around a lot. My own feeling about it is slightly different. My The best way of explaining it is this, and I know this sounds really stupid. When I was a kid, I loved watching horror movies. When I was a kid, I mean, and a teenager. Um, they spoke to me. They worked for me. They completely engaged me, and they took me out of the here and now. They did the thing that movies are meant to do, which is to take you out of the here and now to take you to another place. So they were transcendent i would sit in the cinema and i'd watch a horror movie it was a good horror movie i would be completely engrossed in it completely involved nothing else would be in my mind except for the movie and one of the reasons that i am so obsessed with the exorcist is i remember really really clearly sitting in the phoenix in east finchley watching the exorcist for the first time and feeling really profoundly alive terrified i mean terrified to the point that i was almost having an out-of-body experience but being really supremely conscious of being alive and in the moment and you know buddhists and everything always talk about living in the moment that it's quite a hard thing to live in the moment and i think we've all had experiences i'm not saying the only experience we've all had experiences when you you think i am i am aware of being alive and conscious right now and cinematically for me I had that experience with The Exorcist and I will never forget it. And I have spoken to many horror fans who think that same thing, that there is, it, it, you can feel the blood coursing through your veins. You can you can feel the skin on your skeleton. You, you are profoundly aware and alive and it is, at its very best, a transcendent experience. I I understand that that may not be true for everybody, but I also think that liking horror is like liking opera. You either do or you don't. There isn't any explaining it. 
And that Reverend Martin Clark is a prof- the profound answer I suspect that he was that he was after. Okay. Now you talk about horror movies the way Chris Bonington talks about climbing mountains. Well, uh, that's in very, terms of that's a very uh, kind thing to say. In terms of a visceral, yeah. I'm alive and there's nothing else in my head now because there cannot be room <laughs> for anything else yeah. because it's a matter of life yeah, and death. Exactly. So, Climbing a mountain might be slightly more dangerous. Than <laughs> exactly. You can't fall off a horror film. Exactly. Box office top 10 out of 10 is the Lego Ninjago movie. Mm. Blade Runner 2049. Well, is I've that... just, yeah, loved it, loved it, I loved think it. you've said everything. Yeah, and, 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 and thank you so much to all the people for the kind words about the spoiler-tastic thing that we did at the end of the podcast. Couple the of... most spoilery thing. It was the most spoilery thing. It felt it felt wrong to do it, but it's been, it's been lovely getting responses from people. Thanks so much for that. Um, we are hoping that Denis Villeneuve will come on the show in the new year, by the Great. way. Great. Okay. Uh, Florida Project is at number eight. I just loved the Florida Project. I thought it was a really exceptional piece of work from the director of Tangerine, uh, Sean Baker, this story about people living, you know, a, a, a sort of poverty existence just outside, beyond the walls of Disney World, and yet seen through the eyes of a child, six-year-old at the, at the Muni, at the centre of this drama. And it's a film which has it, you know, its feet on the floor and its head in the stars. And it's really moving and it's really... Some people wrote in and said, I don't like these characters and I didn't get involved. I just don't understand that at all. I thought it was compassionate and vibrant and thrilling and and just, I mean, one of the best films of the year. Uh, Eleanor, an engineer from Dalston, uh, writes, the film that it drew immediate parallels with was I, Daniel Blake. And I'm not just saying this because Mark deemed it a clever comparison when made by another listener last week. Both, although you are, both stories centre on a mother who is desperately doing anything required to keep her fractured family afloat. The major difference between the two films is that the central characters that Ken Loach created in Daniel Blake are much easier to sympathise with. The mother and child of the Florida Project are complicated and disruptive, with Hallie's erratic temper and often crass, ungainly and sometimes outright cruel behaviour, it's not difficult for the viewer to imagine how it is that she's ended up where she is in life. However, despite these flaws, my sympathies were completely with hers and Mooney's plight. The love between mother and child is obvious. In last week's show, Mark described the wonderment and beauty of the world watched through Mooney's eyes. It would be easy for a film centering around a life of poverty to become pretty heavy going, but from Mooney's innocent perspective, the world is full of laughter and colour and adventure. I went to see the film knowing very little about it and it washed over me like a warm wave. However, I have never seen so many walkouts. Yeah, I told... I, we, we did, somebody else said this yeah. last week. I told my cinema-going companion Florence... Uh, who was surprised at such a response from the open-minded audience of the Rio Cinema in Dalston, saying, "Wow, this, this is hardly Tunbridge Wells. Uh, walkouts from the Rio in Dalston, I am surprised by that. Steve MacArthur, I'm pleased I trusted Mark's review. What a wonderful movie. The opening scenes are full of joy and freedom of a child's summer holiday in a magical setting, but this starts to give way to something more unsettling below the surface. I've heard comments that there's no story, but I strongly disagree. Rather, the movie tells the story mostly through the children's viewpoint and occasionally by showing their reactions to events off-screen or at the edge of the shot. Slowly, you understand the circumstances of the families. Um, uh, in contrast, rather, sorry, uh, families, contra- they contrast rather sharply with brightly coloured motels and the surrounding environment. It reminded me not so much of another movie, but the novel To Kill a Mockingbird, in the sense that you see the viewpoint of a child and understand what the child sees, but the story shows events that allow the viewer and reader to understand the complexities of adult life that are just out of reach of the child's comprehension. Uh, just one more, Alex in Bristol. Uh, attended a showing of the Florida Project at the Watershed in Bristol. Which is a lovely cinema. Personally, I enjoyed it very much. However, this enjoyment wasn't shared by everyone in the cinema. The second the final shot ended, as anyone 
has seen the film will know it's an abrupt cut. There was a slightly phlegmy snort of derision from someone sat in the row behind. This was immediately followed by a scathing review, spoken rather loudly. If you're interested, they accused it of being pretentious twaddle. They, pretentious? Uh, this, brought, this brought me crashing out of the moment and tainted my feelings towards the film. It was surprisingly annoying. I've always thought there was an unspoken cinema rule stating that should a film wield a degree of emotional punch, there should be at least five seconds of mm. respectful quiet after the final scene ends in order to allow viewers to collect their thoughts. This should be... Um, added to the code of conduct. Yeah, there's also, I mean, uh, Dave Norris tweeted me an article that I think was in... Dave is our projectionist. A projectionist. It's a, it, in, it looks like it's in The Guardian about when cinemas should turn on the lights and the fact that, you know, the cinemas have now got into... So the, the, they, they start turning on the lights long before the film is finished. And actually, if you know anything about end sequences and, you know, you let the film play out in its entirety, but... Every time we talk about this, well, you know, I, I bring up that thing about Captain Mannering standing up at you know for the, for the national anthem and getting run over by trampled by a, trampled underfoot, yes, by his platoon. Uh, so Florida Project is at number eight. Only the Brave is at seven. I mean, the, the film is a tribute to the firefighters and their heroism, and on that level, it you know it 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 does serve as a tribute. The problem is it's 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 rather ordinary filmmaking. Um, it's not. It, it, it's not an exceptional piece of work as a film itself. It did remind me, as I said before, of that thing that Ron Howard said when he made Backdraft, that, you know, firefighters are the modern-day heroes. And and the film certainly puts that idea forward. It borrows um, stylistically from things like An Officer and a Gentleman. Um, and it's fine. It's fine. Some very solid performances. Um, Jennifer Connelly, who I love, I'd like to see her use more in, in, you know, she's she's quite often sort of in supporting roles. I think she's a really terrific lead player. But it's, it's good. It's solidly constructed. Jay Lewis from our Facebook page. I hadn't expected a great deal from Only the Brave, having seen virtually no promotional material for it, but it were, but I was an emotional wreck come the end. Oh, OK. Sobbing quite openly. I recommend everyone seeing it as it serves as a great tribute to the dangerous and life-threatening work that firefighters do on a daily basis, for which they so rarely receive recognition. And I think on that level, as I said, as a tribute, it does work. Uh, Death of Stalin is at six. Well, I think you and I are both in agreement that it, it's really funny, but it's really dark don't go expecting a endless laugh riot jigsaw is at five which is a perfectly decent i mean who knew that the sort franchise had any life left in it at all i know that every single franchise particularly when you're talking about horror or fantasy or anything like that will, will always be relaunched and rebooted but i thought they did this you know as well as could be done and i did enjoy it i did enjoy watching it i saw it in a cinema on the opening night with uh, with you know fans of the series and it does, as Kim Newman quite rightly pointed out, it is a film which at least obeys the logic of its own rules and regulations. So it is a film made for the fans. A Bad Mums Christmas is at four. Which is nothing like as funny as Bad Mums. I, the more I think about it, and we've talked about this, the circumstances under which I saw Bad Mums probably made it seem funnier than it was, but I had really, really happy memories of seeing that. Bad Mums Christmas, it did pass the six laughs test, just because I think there are you know some players in it that I really like, but it's scrappy and messy, not least because there isn't a single goal, there isn't a single enemy. It feels much more like, although having said that, let me say right now, you put it next to Justice League and say which of those two films Spoiler. makes the more sense. Spoiler. Thor Ragnarok at three. It's this weird thing that some people took against Thor Ragnarok because it was such fun. Again, put it next to Justice League. Spoiler. 
<laughs> Murder on the Orient Express is a number two. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I love the way it looks. There are definitely moments in the exteriors when it is Murder on the on the Polar Express. But I like that idea of, you know, the old variety show film, which takes, you know, a load of really big stars and puts them in a confined environment. And I like the way that the that the frame is used, the way in which the camera crawls and prowls around the, the train. I think Bran has directed it well. It did take me a while to get used to his twin effect moustache. But one, once you, once it settles down, it makes sense. Uh, Paddington 2 is number one. I'm going to go first and then you can yeah. then you can go. Rachel Cannon says, just wanted to let you know that there's light at the end of the tunnel and it comes courtesy of a small brown bear in a duffel coat and a hat. <laughs> Last weekend, I promised my son Harry that we would go and see Paddington 2 together. We both loved the first film, so this had been eagerly anticipated for some time. Forgive me for being a grumpus, but to be honest, much as I was looking forward to the film, I was not relishing the prospect of a cinema full of excited, noisy children fueled by pick and mix. I was reminded of the words I'd had with the row behind during Despicable Me 3 when feet appeared on the seat back Uh. beside my right ear and along she said, he said, phone conversation had to be endured. Sure enough, on arrival, the queue was long, the food was piled high and there were few seats left but was to be expected so soon after the film's release. My heart sank, but as the trailers commenced, I was determined not to let it spoil our enjoyment. The lights went down, the film began, and you could have heard a pin drop. It won't last, I thought. (laughs) Give it five minutes and packets will be rustling and there'll be the first of many excursions to the toilet for poo-splosions. We sat back and watched the story unfurl, and before long we were both deep into the action. About half an hour in, glancing across at Harry's enraptured face, I suddenly realised that there was absolutely no sound apart from what was playing out in front of us, and not one person had moved. What a brilliant thing. It was as if he and I were the only people in the cinema. I actually found myself checking behind me to see if this was the case, but seeing faces reflected in the light of the screen, it was clear that to a man and woman, the audience was as captivated by Paddington as his latest advent uh, and his latest adventure as we were so it remained for the rest and so it remained for the rest of the film and what a total joy it was to experience so much laughter some quiet tears and there were even a small cheer from further back when one of the, the characters thing did the thing, that with, thing with the safely thing. we were all in it together and we all loved it no rush to get to the car park as the credits rolled the majority of the audience just sat there to the end thankfully only two people missed that bit by leaving before the rest of us yeah. now I would invite this is a regular feature I'd invite you to imagine what you were like when you were 12. Okay. Okay. And whether you could have sent, I know some people are a bit sniffy about whether this is genuinely scented by a 12 year old. As you know, we always assume that this is true. Oh, yeah. So we're going to get the torrent of tweets, which is it's obviously written by the parents. No 12 year old can be that clever. My name is Elliot and I'm 12. I saw Paddington 2, and despite not particularly being the target audience, I think I enjoyed it a fair bit. I think it's relentlessly lovely film that balances. Homage to the source material, callbacks to the first film and new characters and plot points to make a fresh and exciting sequel. As opposed to the first film, which tinkered with a quirky upper-class London aesthetic. This film goes... How how did he spell aesthetic? A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C. Okay, spell checker. This film goes full out and is definitely more visually enticing with some interesting stuff being done throughout. The sound design and score also improved, becoming more whimsical and refined, but the main improvement was Hugh Grant, who does a marvellous job chewing up the scenery as our villain Phoenix Buchanan. His motivations are funnier and his character is more defined than Nicole Kidman's in the first, for sure. And there are other paragraphs, but uh, for a, that's pretty smart. Uh, Elliot, thank you. Just do one more and then it's your turn. Okay. I mean, I don't have much to say other than I agree with all of this and I just think that Hugh Grant is 
really, really funny. Jonathan Kerwin, fellow double bassist, Newton Abbott, Badminton Player of the Year 2003. Uh, I've often wondered what cinematic experience would one day cause me to finally put fingers to keyboard and write to your bad cells. Well, it comes down to a bear. I and the good lady actress her indoors have just come out of a screening of Paddington 2 and quite frankly I feel like flying a kite and better about humanity. Very good. The film is a fuzzy, snuggly cuddle of a film (laughs) with impeccable manners which smashed the six laugh test and caused me to tear up at the end for all the right reasons. I was left with the sense that right now we could all do with a healthy dollop of Paddington in our lives. He is much more than a cute, accident-prone lover of marmalade. He is the embodiment of the belief that being kind... That most overlooked of virtues will always pay dividends. Tinkety tonk and all that. Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was really magical and charming. It was lovely to see uh, Sanjeev in it. Um, lovely to see Sanjeev in a film with Mira Sahal as well. Um, the 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 real achievement for me is that I didn't even think about how well the CG was done until after the film when I realised that I hadn't noticed how well the CG was done. And I noticed it because somebody asked me. Somebody said, you know, well, do you do you completely believe that the bear is there? And I realised I'd watched the whole film never thinking that the bear was anything other than, yes, than made there. that assumption. And inf- it made me think a little bit about, you know, when we, were, when we were talking about War for the Planet of the Apes, that the performance capture was so great that five minutes in, I just stopped even wondering how it was that they had done it. But in the case of Paddington, I just, you know, you just think it's a bear. It's absolutely fine. And it's really charming and really funny and really sweet. Just a quick email before uh, before the news from Tom and Tanya. It's in the similar kind of vein, but I think you'll okay. like it. Uh, very nervous heart. We attempted to visit number three. This is a visit to the cinema number three with our three-year-old. Uh, Despicable Me, we tried. They had, quote, a big, scary, bad robot man and ended in tears as there were, quote, too many people making noise, a young entertainment convert in the making. <laughs> then we tried Cars, which was too big, too much big noise, Daddy. And we thought maybe we had, in our over-enthusiasm, tried to share our love of film too early. But then came the bear with the stare and the politest of manners. Having already loved the first film on the small screen, we had hope, but then we had Love Cars and Despicable Me too, and they ended in an early exit. <laughs> Still a midday, midweek showing at our local cine suggested hope for less of a crowd. The adverts went on and on and on and on, and there we sat, still and focused, waiting to see Paddington. The film started and he barely moved. His eyes fixed on the screen. He laughed in the right places, and aside from one acceptable code violation near the climax where he exclaimed... He's sad, Daddy, as his daddy was actually subtly wiping a tear away. I'm glad to say he had his first real wow moment experiencing the power of watching a great film at the cinema. I could go on for ages about how good this film is, the perfect tone, the humour, the utter joy of watching it, but I'll leave this review to my son. As we walked to the car, he said, That was wowzers. I'm going to watch more films in the cinema with Mummy and Daddy and with Bears in, always with Bears. So no other reviews are necessary. Well, that's quite limiting, though, in future, if you're only going to see a film uh, with bears. I mean, yeah, end up watching Grizzly Man at some point. That's not, that's can, not a good idea. But it just, was, anyway, it was wowzers. That's all you need. Very briefly, yes. My sister, the first film she was taken to see was Mary Poppins. Me too. And my dad still remembers that in the moment when the fireworks went off, after she'd behaved really well through the film, when the fireworks went off of the thing, she stood on the chair and went, Pretty! That's the same. That's probably the way they used to say wowzers yes. back in the day. And an email, uh, which I'm going to read out without telling you who it's from. Okay. Uh, Mark and Simon, I work as a prison officer in South London, so please don't read out my name. After a long day of work on Thursday, I decided to see Paddington with my dad. 
thinking it would be the perfect way to switch off from work. Little did I know that the bear himself ends, ends up, up in, behind in bars. Tokyo, yes. I will be writing to my governor in the morning to suggest purchasing marmalade in large quantities, having seen the impact it has on Her Majesty's guests. Hugh Grant stole the show, and I really recommend it to people of all ages. Paddington, please come and do my job for me. Yes, I, it's not a particularly realistic uh, characterization of prison life, I imagine, but... I, I have... I don't know. The healing power of marmalade is yeah. certainly in evidence. I, so, I certainly hope that every prison does, conti- does have somebody called Knuckles McGinty. Almost certainly. And thanks to Jenny Litton, who started this show by saying if we played her some chuckles from Sir Chuckles Branner, she'd give some money to children in need, and she's given 40 quid, So because we played it twice. Oh, fantastic. Oh, thank you very much. That's so great. She's, she's even sent the, the, the compliment slip that the BBC send back. Saying, <laughs> really? Thanks for the cash. Proof. Uh, as proof. Uh, just on, on that subject of loving Hugh Grant in Paddington, and you sort of hinted at this, don't leave before the end. Don't leave before the end, particularly if you've enjoyed Hugh Grant in the film. Don't leave before the Things end. These days, there's, it, there's a real treat. You always have to stay because yeah. you never know what kind of treats are going to be. Yeah, I had to stay end. all the way to the very, very end of Justice League, and there were, there was a, there was a treat, which wasn't a treat, I'm guessing. So Justice League reviewed after uh, three o'clock. Now let's talk. About, well, it's a Christmas film, so we are going to start the Christmas countdown here. Are we okay? Uh, Is it officially? Christmas. How how many days till Christmas? Oh, I don't know. Enough. A lot. It's enough. We don't have. Even to think not in about December. Part of the fact that the movies are around and Daddy's Home Two is about to be out. We're going to talk to John Lithgow in a second. Here's a clip featuring John with Will Ferrell, Scarlett Estefez, and first Mel Gibson. Did you touch the thermostat? Did you turn it up? Well, of course not. Did somebody fiddle with the thermostat? Yes, it's 85 degrees. 85? 85. Do you have any idea how much even a few degrees can impact the gas bill? Of course I do. It's unthinkable. Dad, Kurt, what's going on in here? Why is it so hot? Someone fiddled with the thermostat. What? Who would do that? What do you think you're doing? It's roasting in here. I like to sleep with my window open. Hey, kid. Are you allowed to touch the thermostat at your mom's house? (laughs) Duh. And that's a clip from Daddy's Home 2. I'm delighted to say that one of its stars, John Lithgow, joins us on the programme. Hello, John. How are you? Very well. How are you, Simon? I'm very good. Good afternoon. I'm not going to say Happy Christmas because I refuse to go down that line, even though we're talking about a Christmas movie. (laughs) It just seems a little bit soon. It's a little early, yes. But, uh, well, they presume that it'll be such a smash hit. It'll sail through Christmas. So so you must have been in your Christmas gear and singing, do they know it's Christmas, what, in the middle of April? April and May. We, We brought... Brought in the spring season in red and green. All right. Get us up to speed. Immerse us in this world. All right. There was a film called Daddy's Home, which was about a stepdad played by Will Ferrell and a biological dad, Mark Wahlberg, who comes back onto the scene and becomes his rival for the affections of the children and even the wife. And it was a big hit. So they decided to figure out a premise for a good sequel. And they decided to bring the next generation of dads home for Christmas. And that's Mel Gibson is Mark Wahlberg's dad. And Will Ferrell's dad is me. Yeah. What kind of a guy are you? (laughs) (laughs) Just what kind of a guy am I? Yes. Well, my character is over-the-top, sloppy, sentimental. Mm -hmm. A sort of soft-love dad who just adores his son and his son adores him. The interesting wrinkle is that he is a a postman who thinks his job is the most exciting job anyone could have and never stops talking about it. 
It's sort of the comedy of tedium. He, he clears every room except for his son, who thinks everything he says is incredibly exciting. Uh, that sort of characterizes me. And my completely opposite number is Mel Gibson, who is a sort of hard-knuckle, yeah. tough-love dad, actually a kind of abandoning dad. We, we kind of believe him when he makes jokes, uh, brash, masculine, chauvinistic jokes. We kind of... Yeah. It's kind of like a, a self-parody, would you say? Yes, a I, it's actually a cool choice for Mel to have made because he does make ruthless fun of himself in the role. I would quite like to have seen you in his role. Well, um, it would have been interesting. <laughs> there was a, actually a review, a not very positive review, that made exactly that suggestion. I would have been game for that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're on set with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell and Mel Gibson, if you're funny people, are you allowed to... Uh, ad lib at all are you are you quite tied to the script or the script is is good and solid and uh, written by the director sean anders and his co-writer john morris and it's cracking good but it's part of their work process to just uh, allow us to step outside the lines all the time and of course we're working with will and mark who had done the first film and it sort of created a process with sean uh, that was very much the mode. It's happening a lot in movies. I've also worked with Judd Apatow, who has kind of created the movie, the new movie comedy mode, and that's how he works completely. There is a script, and you do a the scripted scene, but then it's almost presumed that they leave the cameras on. You do it again. He throws out suggestions from off camera. Before you know it, you're improvising the entire scene. Wow. And a year later, you see the film, and a good 40% of it, of the, of the dialogue, was captured in improvisation, even though it's, it hues to the shape of a scene. That must be quite thrilling, I would, I would it's think, very, for, for an actor. It's, it's very say. exciting for an actor, and uh, it, it does depend on the director creating exactly the right conditions for it. But that was, that was our mode on this film, too. Not quite to that extent, but they're wonderful improvisers. And my character, as I've said, we made the decision to make him talk all the time. Oh, my goodness, do you talk all yeah. the time. And what you see is only a fraction of what I actually spoke. Whenever they needed sort of background noise, they would just sort of... It's like I had a switch on my back. He would turn me on, and I would just babble on. So that improv thing, you think, is comparatively new? I had, In a movie? I had not worked this way until I worked with Judd. And uh, now it seems to be very, you know, and I've worked with some pretty expert people in this mode, Jack Black and uh, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann. It's now part of the skill set. So when you were doing, because I was thinking, because you did a, the only other Christmas movie I can think of yours was Santa Claus the Movie with Dudley Moore. Yeah. How does, was there any... No. Any comparison at all? Other no than comparison at all. That was very much a, in another era and another mode altogether. Uh, it's just, I don't know how much you're aware of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes, very much so, of course. But that's an improvised, again, Larry David created this improv mode. In relation to this movie, I had one attack of liberal angst yes. in the, uh, there's a scene where the kid is playing with a hunting rifle. Yes. It was a halting moment and I stopped and I thought, oh, is this funny? Can I laugh at this? What did, mm-hmm. what did you think? I think everybody has that reaction. It's been a year of, of horrors in this area. 
it's a tricky thing doing comedy because the zeitgeist can change immediately. Think of the how the zeitgeist has changed with the whole issue of sexual harassment. Uh, that's just the nature of comedy. Uh, timing is everything, and timing can go wrong. When you watched it back, you didn't think, oh, I'm not quite sure you were... Uh, I had somewhat your reaction, but I didn't have that reaction when we were shooting it. It's very, very interesting. So I'm sitting opposite you, John. I'm thinking of all the films that I've seen you in uh, over the years, and some listeners asked some, some terrific questions. But the question, and this is a film show, so I, I should really restrict myself to films. Whatever you want to ask. However, Winston Churchill, I have to mention Winston Churchill, because your performance in The Crown was so extraordinary that it just blew everybody uh, away. And it seemed like an amazing piece of casting. When you got that gig or when you got asked to, I don't know whether you did, I don't know how, how that works, were you blown away by that? Yeah, it, it came as a phone call from my agent and with an offer. They wanted me to do this. And I was completely blindsided by it, astonished. I didn't know the project existed. Uh, I never would have dreamed I'd be cast as Winston Churchill. In fact, I'd played Franklin Roosevelt once yeah. with Bob Hoskins. So Bob Hoskins yes. playing Churchill. You didn't look at him and think, I could do that? <laughs> no. I looked at him and said, I could never do that. I wasn't Michael Caine Stalin. Yeah, right. It was, <laughs> it was crazy. But uh, yes, I, I was very excited. The offer came from Peter Morgan and Stephen Daldry, who are this wonderful tandem of writer and director. I knew Stephen slightly, but I'd never worked with him and always wanted to. I... I I just thought, well, they must know something. Uh, I got together with Stephen after I'd said yes, and I said, "Why did why me?" <laughs> and his the first thing he said was, "Well, Churchill's mother was American, which is true. I think, in a larger sense, they thought I can't speak for them, but Churchill himself was sui generis, even among Englishmen. Uh, there's nobody like Churchill, and." In a way, they almost needed a surprising piece of casting. As I say, that's my only rationale after the fact. This, the scene that you did with uh, where Churchill is with Graham Sutherland and you're talking about painting is, I think, the greatest scene in that series. I mean, it's not talked about because it's not got a member of the royal family in it, but yes. I thought that was an astonishing Incredible. piece of acting. And I got to work with Stephen Delane, who's one of my favorite actors ever to work with and to watch. It was typical of Morgan that he found little cracks, little off-ramps in history that he could pursue and turn into extraordinary and revealing scenes and episodes, like uh, the, the big smoke episode, spinning that into something that tells us so much about Churchill. Uh, and yet, I, I yes. had never even heard of the big smoke. Uh, it was It's such an ingenious series. I have to tell you, to come here to London. This is my first time here since being in The Crown. Uh, and to hear an Englishman tell me that I'd done a good job almost makes me want to weep with pride. Thank you. Well, well, it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, I, <laughs> uh, I, thought, I thought it was an astonishing piece of casting, and that scene was, was a great success. So I'm happy yeah. to make you weep, John. <laughs> just look at me. And I'm just looking at your back catalogue, uh, if you like, which this conversation about the crown comes into, but Third Rock from the Sun, Interstellar, King Lear, Garp, Terms of Endearment, Dexter, the pastor who said we couldn't dance in Footloose, all these roles, you have taken such a huge variety of roles. What is it that you're looking 
for when a script comes through? Is it something surprising? Is it something that's going to take you somewhere that you haven't been before? Well, there's also all sorts of different reasons to take a job, but you're right. Being surprised is the most delightful thing of all. I just described the surprise at being asked to do The Crown. It, it, it would be wonderful if I could calculate everything, but actors don't get to choose as much as you would think. But in my dreams, everything I do is as different as possible from what I just did, just so that I'm trying to surprise an audience, let alone myself. Uh, some listeners' questions to you, John. Steve Clark, how does it feel to be the only actor to have played Winston Churchill and Yoda? <laughs> well, I find a, lot, a good deal of similarity between the two, don't you? Just explain where the Yoda came from. John Madden cast me as Yoda in the radio version of Empire Strikes Back, way back in, I think, 1982. Uh, he, was, he, had, he had Mark uh, Hamill, and he had Billy D. Williams and Anthony Daniels, but Frank Oz chose not to be Yoda on radio. So he was beside himself. He couldn't find Yoda. He was directing me in a play at the time and described his problem. And I said, oh, impatient is he? And he cast me on the spot. <laughs> Daniel Hebert, I, get you have, I bet you haven't been asked about this for a long time. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension was bizarre, glorious, baffling, and really good fun in equal measure. It's developed a very decent cult reputation since. What are your feelings on that? Oh, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, it is a completely lunatic film. It doesn't exactly stand the test of time, but I do urge people to discover it or rediscover it. I played Lord John Warfen, who had taken over the body of an Italian physicist named Emilio Lizardo in the 1930s, and it, it was shot in the present day, and he was a crazy combination of alien and human. Diana Whitmill is making the same point about the, the range of roles that you take on, but she says, what is harder to succeed in, comedy, emotional hard hitters, or dark roles? Then she says, hidden agenda, I think comedy is much tougher. And, gets, and I get very cross with, oh, well, it's only comedy kind of comments. Well, I like, I like uh, the questioner. She's very smart. You frequently see funny people doing dramatic roles, but you rarely see dramatic actors succeed big time in comic roles. It's wonderful to cross over between the two. I'm just game for anything. Uh, I, I'm glad when people think of me for funny things. Marcel Noy, I still consider your season on Dexter as peak Dexter in terms of a serious hero needing a strong antagonist. Why do I still get chills when I think of you saying, hello, Dexter Morgan? Yes, that goes on my little list of uh, lucky lines. You get a few of those. It's not much of a line, though, unless you make it work. Yeah, well, it was the culmination of about 10 episodes of Dexter. Uh, all that time, Dexter and my character... Arthur Mitchell had been playing this curious psychological chess game uh, without Arthur Mitchell ever knowing that Dexter had his number. People had been waiting for that line for about uh, three months. Is it Broadway next? It is. Yes, I have a solo show that I've been doing for about nine years. I've even done it here at the National only on two Monday nights. It's called Stories by Heart, and it's kind of an autobiographical meditation on storytelling in which I do a solo performance of two fantastic uh, 
short stories which lend themselves to the stage, a P.G. Woodhouse story and a Ring Lardner American story. And was it your father who told you that story? That's right. He read from a big fat book of stories to me and my siblings when we were kids, and I used the same book to read to him when he was an old man, uh, which is kind of the premise of the evening. You should come back and do a tour, a proper tour. I think I, I, I would, I, having done it on Broadway, I'll think I, it'll be a saleable quantity. Uh, John Lisko, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much Such for your time. Such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you, Simon. The very avuncular John Lisko. Lovely man. Yes. Uh, absolutely lovely man. Uh, and uh, he'd be welcome back uh, any time. And I think you're going to be reviewing that film next Next week. week. I'm seeing it on Monday, so I'll review it next Friday. Four minutes to three. Uh, here's something that's brand new. Trophy is a documentary about the so-called canned trophy hunting business. Rich tourists spending huge amounts of money for the privilege of going to foreign countries where they can kill rare animals that have been essentially lined up for their pleasure. We've all seen pictures of Donald Trump's sons posing with dead elephant buffalo and a leopard and we've all been repulsed by images I think of privileged white guys killing rare animals because they can afford to. BBC News Today reports the Trump administration will allow American hunters to import elephant trophies to the US reversing an Obama era 2014 ban. So this couldn't be more timely. What the documentary tries to do is to unpick the relationship between on the one hand conservation and on the other hand the hunting industry. The argument is that the best way to preserve animals who are endangered is to breed them and the best way to pay for breeding them is to allow rich tourists to kill some of them for fun. The argument gets most knotty during um, interviews with a South African rhino farmer who cuts the, the, the horns from the rhinos in order to prevent them being poached. Um, he then stockpiles the horns and what he is arguing is that he wants to be able, during the course of the documentary, that he wants to be able to sell the stockpile of horns in order to fund his farms, because what he says he's doing is, is preserving rhinos, but he can't because the, uh, the sale of the horns has been outlawed. And the suggestion, therefore, is that what that actually does is increases poaching whilst being to the detriment of people who are preserving the animals. And this very knotty issue is played out through the course of this documentary. Now, obviously, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I have particular feelings about, uh, about, about this. The documentary is very even-handed, very, very balanced. However, there is, uh, there is one thing in it which I think is very telling, a scene of an American who has made it his mission to go and kill sort of top Trump set of animals there's like a top five or top six whatever it is and he wants to go and do it pretty quickly because he's worried that killing some of them will be made illegal and we see him you know out on these kills and then weeping over the beautiful body of this animal that he has killed and then there's an interview about two-thirds of the way through the film in which he says yeah you know the thing is if you believe in evolution you're an idiot and I've read the Bible and the Bible says that, you know, God put these animals on the earth and that man would have domain over them. So the reason I feel good about going out and doing this is because I know that they were put here for my sport and my pleasure. And that's fine. And that's the point at which you go. Right. OK, every single uh, feeling that I have about the depravity of what you're doing just thank you very much for your own mouth are you condemned i think the documentary is very interesting because it you know it does attempt balance obviously i found it i found sections of it really repugnant to watch it does try to be very very balanced and even-handed about the arguments but i do think the sight of somebody declaring that they have the right to do this because it says in the bible that god gave man domain over the animals so that makes it all right However you respond to that comment will probably define how you respond to the documentary. Is it a good piece of cinema? It's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a well-constructed documentary that made me very angry. 
Uh, and this, from, we'll do Justice League in just a second. Yes. Eve Betts in Somerset. This is a, a, an Arles outbreak. Okay, yeah. Altitude adjusted lacrimosity syndrome. syndrome. My boyfriend Matthew and I are halfway through a long distance period whilst Matthew completes his PhD in quantum physics at the University of Constance in southern Germany. Okay? Okay. This has meant fortnightly and sometimes weekly trips back and forth to see each other. Your podcasts have been our favourite soundtrack to our travels back and forth, driving to the airport, flying out to the Swiss-German border. As a frequent flyer, I usually rely on your podcast to get me through the flight, but I've recently upgraded my fruit-based device, I know it's not funny, and been able to download films from a popular streaming service onto my phone. Okay. I decided to try this out for the first time last Friday. On my flight out, I chose to watch an old favourite of mine, Richard Curtis's Notting Hill. Okay? Yes, which is, as we all know, a reliable fave. Everything was going great. I chuckled through all my favourite scenes, particularly Julia Roberts' stinging one-liners in the bookshop. Tempting, but no. Remember that one? Yes. So that's yes, I do remember that. That's the shoplifter. <coughs> He's had a book down his trousers. Who says, would you like my phone number to Julia Roberts? She says, tempting, but no. The problem started when Hugh Grant tried to climb the garden gate after the birthday party. Every whoops-a-daisy, every time Julia Roberts giggled, I dissolved into hysterical chuckling. Only succeeding in calming myself down by using my scarf as a hysteria suppressant <laughs> by pushing it into my mouth seems a little extreme. Having calmed down sufficiently to continue viewing, the film moved on to the garden scene. Our Hugh and our Julia walking over the moonlit grass and Julia reading the carving on a bench that says to June, who loved this garden, from Joseph, who always sat beside her. And then Julia says some people do spend their whole lives together. Now, whether it was that line, the lilting voice of Ronan Keating singing in the background, or the fact that I was flying 500 miles to see the love of my life, I don't know. But I started to cry, quietly at first, and then huge hiccuping tears that even my scarf couldn't suppress. Thankfully, it was a quiet flight, and there was no one sat in the two rows next to me, so I only received a confused look from the German man across the aisle and managed to pass the sobs off as plane engine rumbles. <laughs> I've watched this film at least eight times in my 23 years of existence and have yet to have such strong, uncontrollable reactions to it. After discussing this with my soon-to-be doctor partner, he informs me regularly that being a doctor of atoms means you're a doctor of everything. He diagnosed me with ARLS, and we will keep you informed of any developments. That's very good. Being a doctor of atoms means you're a doctor of everything. Pretty much. I mean, that's probably true, I suppose. Although chemists might say the same thing. There is a phrase, isn't there, about um, specialism. We, we, they say this when you're doing a PhD. Specialisation means knowing more and more about less and less. That's the way it goes. Yeah. I've got a whole stack of emails here, and they all say Justice League. Okay, because it, so did it open yesterday? I think it's had some. It's obviously had a significant opening. Okay, fine. Expression. So Justice League, uh, directed by... Zack Snyder with a script by Chris Terrio and Joss Whedon who was brought in to oversee the, to direct the reshoots after Zack Snyder had to leave the project for reasons of family tragedy. The story is, uh, well we pick up where it was left off Superman is dead, the world is still in mourning and the world needs uh, Superman more than ever because there is a super big beastie uh, on, their, on their way to Earth and they're going to beat everybody into submission and we, we really need, you know, we, we need to have Superman No, we just back. need Paddington. We need Paddington that's right, to give us a super hard stare yeah. you know, come over here Steppenwolf and I'll give you a super hard stare. So Bruce Wayne, Diana Prince Batman and Wonder Woman, they need a new team and to get the new team, this will involve travelling to Iceland to recruit Aquaman, who doesn't talk to fish, he talks to the water, and then the water talks to the fish. Cyborg, who's been rebuilt Robocop-style following um, an accident, can't control his mechanical parts, and 
Flash, a.k.a. Barry Allen, played by Ezra, we need to talk about Kevin Miller, who is there, as far as I can tell, for comic relief. I know you have abilities. I just don't know what they are. My special skills include uh, viola, uh, web design, fluent in sign language, gorilla sign language. Silica-based quartz sand fabric, abrasion resistant, heat resistant. Uh, yeah, I do competitive ice dancing. It's what they use on the space shuttle to prevent it from burning up on re-entry. I do very competitive ice dancing. Whoever you're looking for. You're the Batman. So you're fast. That feels like an oversimplification. I'm putting together a team. People with special abilities. You see, I believe enemies are coming. Stop right there. I'm in. You are? Yeah. I, I need friends. He's the comic relief. Um, there is a, the reports are that having done the initial shoot and having looked at the reaction to, on the one hand, you know, BVS Dodgers, no one's calling it, and on the other hand, Wonder Woman, it was decided that when they were doing reshoots, they should get some more levity, some more jokes, some more humour into the film because that was clearly what audiences wanted. What audiences didn't want was, you know, super dark, super sombre. Um, I mean, this is actually nonsense because, I mean, as Wonder Woman... Uh, and uh, uh, and the Dark Knight proved you can have. I mean, the the, the Nolan Dark Knight movies are really dark and they're really great. Uh, Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman movie is really colourful and it's really great. The thing about them is, is that they're both really good films. This is neither dark nor light. It is just absolute rubbish. Before the screening started, there was word because we'd looked on the internet and the word said that the film was two hours, 50 minutes long. And it was like 15 or 50, 50 two hours, 50 minutes long. And there was a no, And then everyone. No, no, no. That's a mistake. It's not two hours, 50 minutes long. It's two hours long. We can see it on the BBFC site. So for some reason, the Internet was reporting that it was two hours, 50 minutes long. But it wasn't. There was a huge sigh of relief. Oh, fine. OK, two hours. That'll be a breeze. Honestly, watching uh, Justice League was like sitting through the director's cut of Heaven's Gate and then some. It was one of those films in which, I mean, the storytelling is absolutely, storytelling is a phrase I use loosely. This is the kind of film which, by comparison, Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin is a masterclass in coherence, in character development, in razor sharp storytelling. This is a film which storytelling is all over the place, in which there are too many characters given too little to do and nothing no reason for us to engage with them whatsoever. It starts with a fight scene and it pretty much continues with a fight scene in that vein all the way through, stopping occasionally to explain the plot, do a bit of globe chopping, and to do those flippant asides, many of which look like they have been largely inserted afterwards. The characters all have different character-defining abilities. Well, yeah, except essentially they're all indestructible and they can all fly. You know that line in Toy Story? That's not flying, that's falling with style. Yep. There's a massive amount of falling with style that is, to all intents and purposes, flying. Also, it's a film which does that Kingsman thing. As Kingsman demonstrated, you kill a character and then you bring him back, everyone's indestructible. Once you've, once you've overturned death once, that's absolutely fine. More importantly, it suffers from the Michael Bolton problem of where do we go from here? So at the beginning, there's all this stuff about, oh, you know, this threat that they're facing. It's the threatiest threat in the history of threatiness. And this threat above all other threats is particularly threatening. And it's going to require some incredibly ominous, threatening music at all times. And people looking really threatened by this inconceivably threaty threat that's going to happen. It's going to be bigger. And you just go, 
Yes, it's just Doctor Who, isn't it? It's like this thing when every single episode, I know everything's happened before, but this is worse and this is going to require. And then what happens? Well, you know, have a punch up and reverse the polarities. It'll probably all be fine in the end. The battle sequences look like outtakes from Lord of the Rings. And I don't mean Lord of the Rings, the films. I mean Lord of the Rings, the computer games, the early computer game spin-offs, which attempted to bring some of that majesty that Peter Jackson had onto the small screen. Characters spent an awful lot of time standing on things that make you wonder, how did they get there? So there's a shot of uh, Batman standing on top of a massive scaffold. And he's watching something. I'm just thinking, how did he get up there? Wonder Woman is... Yeah, he flew. He flew indestructibly. Wonder Woman is standing on the arms of, you know, uh, Justice holding the sword and the scales. She's up there. And all I can think of is, how'd you get up there? Seriously, how did you get up there? That's how uninvolved I was. All the actors look bored and awkward. Everybody looks like they want to be somewhere else. I mean, Gal Gadot is easily the best thing in the film. But what you realise is that when you put her in the context of a film like this, it it shows you how much Wonder Woman was to do with the filmmaking, with the direction, with the writing, with everything. It's not just that Gal Gadot makes a good Wonder Woman. There is one character in the film who... Act, whose acting is so wooden that I literally spent a sizable proportion of the film wondering whether they weren't, in fact, a CGI replacement. And I'm pretty certain that they weren't. But it was, you know, it was like watching, uh, you know, a, a, a movie entirely populated by Princess Leia and Grand Moff Tarkin from the, you know, from the recent Star Wars films that people brought back by the miracle of CG. Then we get the end credit sequences, and I don't want to spoil any of this. I will say that there are two end credit sequences. Um, one of them uh, involves more jokes, and the other one, for which I waited till the end of the film. As I was watching the film, I thought, well, at least one really annoying character hasn't come back, so that's good news. And then at the end of the end of the end of the end, they came back. So it was like literally just before the film finally said, Avida Zain, I've wasted enough of your time. I shan't be troubling you any longer. The one person that I was glad wasn't in the film was in the film. Was it Jar Jar Binks? It was Jar Jar Binks. It is really shoddy and really ill-conceived, spectacularly messy, thunderously boring. And... An absolute demonstration of that idea that more is less, you know? Just give me a character that I can care about. You remember when remember we talked about Man of Steel? Whole thing is that all the interesting stuff in Man of Steel is front-loaded when it's about Superman's vulnerabilities, okay? Mm-hmm. The minute that a superhero film stops being about those things, it ceases to be interesting. And as I said, it's a world of indestructo, flyy people hitting each other whilst looking doomy, while the threatiest threat of threatiness threatens Is it them. a world of dread and fear? It is a world of dread and With fear. With a clanging giant it is, doom. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, but, and is there snow? I can't remember. Well, there won't be any snow in Africa this Christmas. Uh, there's lots of that, by the way, in uh, Daddy's Home too, because that's like the, the big finale number. Okay. Andreas in Sweden. I just walked out of a packed screening of Justice League. It feels like DC are on the right track and starting to figure out what actually works for the franchise. Sadly, a lot of the movie proves how much they still get wrong. Wonder Woman showed us a world without men. Well, without one man, Zack Snyder. (laughs) This theory bears out in Justice League. All the bad aspects of the movie, major set pieces destroyed without consequences, are clear hallmarks of Snyder. 
All the good parts, funny, heartwarming asides and clearly reshot banter, are signed Whedon, as in Joss Whedon. Can directors be a part of the Mark Strong butt game? Justice League, starring Gal Gadot, written by Joss Whedon, but directed by Zack Snyder. Uh, this from Sagadat from Kazakhstan. OK. Uh, I am from the former republic, the Soviet, former Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan, which, according to the obscenely profitable iWitter app, does unfortunately mean that I am the only member of the church in almost a 1,000 kilometres. Wow. So he's on his own okay. here. But thanks for the email, Sagadat. As you already might have guessed, I would really love this email to be about the death of Stalin. But as that movie isn't even out in theatres just yet, there's a surprise, this piece of correspondence will instead be about Justice League. I've always been a DC movie universe fan, but not in the obnoxious, your critics don't get it, Zack Snyder is a genius and these movies are a work of art kind of way. More in a, I still enjoy them despite their problems kind of way. Therefore, it isn't surprising that I indeed very much enjoyed this one. Okay. The movie is far from perfect. The plot is not strong, but I really like the characters. The plot is non-existent. And I think that team dynamic worked very well. I especially like Cyborg. The moment we saw Wonder Woman on the screen, the whole audience cheered which, by the way, all also happened during BBS Dodge. Being a 23-year-old male and a long-time comic book reader, it was, also, it was a very pleasant for me to witness a lot of young women in the audience enjoying the movie and excitedly speculating about what certain cameos meant after it was over. Ashley and Kent. Um, I'm going to assume that Mark hated the film. Yes, well done. As he hasn't liked the past offerings from the DC Extended Universe. But I've just got back from a midnight screening of Justice League and I loved it. I thought that all the members of the JL had their own time to shine and it was just so amazing to see them all on screen together. The Flash stole it for me overall. Steppenwolf's CGI could have been better. But other than that, I had a great time. I hope Mark enjoyed it more than I think he will have. <laughs> nope. No. But I also hope he went in with a clear mind as I do think that the one-star reviews and people saying it's embarrassing uh, is way off the mark. Can I say um, I don't think it's way off the mark? I didn't. I haven't read the one-star reviews. Um, I haven't read any reviews because I thought the, I thought the reviews were embargoed until today anyway or whatever it was. But um, no, I, I came out of it and the first thing I said was, what day is it? Uh, Robert in Stockholm. From the entertaining detour that was Wonder Woman, we are back to people flying into buildings and smashing other people into buildings. Whilst not being as rotten as Suicide Squad, it sort of limps in at a shared third place with BVS Dodge, first place being Wonder Woman, second Man of Steel. Despite the shortcomings of Man of Steel and BVS Dodge, at least they had a vision and strived towards something. Justice League just starts and then ends. And that was without plot spoilers. But yeah, at its... that's, and And... Can I just say, that is exactly right. It just starts and then it ends, but not soon enough. OK. Uh, and this from PC Mike, just in Justice League, not as bad as I was expecting. Villain was a bit meh, but the main cast held their own with Gal Gadot stealing the show once again as a marvellous Wonder Woman. OK. Well, Gal Gadot is the best thing in it, but that's not... I mean, even Wonder Woman can't save the day. And it's not enough just to... Have, I mean, I'll go back to it again. Patty Jenkins did something brilliant with Wonder Woman, as did, you know, the entire production team on that film. That film isn't just brilliant because of Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot is brilliant in it, but there are a number of other reasons why it's brilliant. And there are a number of other reasons why the Chris Nolan movies are brilliant. And bear in mind, I'm the person who still thinks that the best of the Nolans is Batman Begins. I mean, you know, I, I love that film. I remember, why are you laughing? 
Best of the Nolans. I mean, I think. Oh, best, oh yeah, the Best of the Nolans is I'm in the mood for dancing, yeah. obviously. And it's a good CD anyway. It's a good, it's a good it CD is, yeah. choice for Christmas. Very good. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, I just walked straight into that. I can't believe I did. No, no, no. It's just, it was just. I know exactly what you were talking about, yeah, but I think you the best would, of the Nolans is... That there's, there's, that's right. <laughs> I haven't seen Justice League, but yeah. I saw the trailer uh, again a couple of days ago, and you can't always tell from the trailer, but I did think if that's the best you've got, then... That's not very good. Then it's going to be quite a struggle, because the trail was terrible. Yeah. Whereas the, the new Star Wars trailers that I've seen are quite enticing and quite intriguing, yeah. but Justice League just really didn't look as though it was going to... Yeah. Be worth the entrance fee. Exactly. Uh, it's 323-85058. You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet at Wittertainment. You can watch the live stream if you want to see Mark get excited about this next film, which is... Mudbound. Why do you, I mean, you know, I, I just look the same all the time. I just look like a bloke talking to you. Yeah, but sometimes you wave your arms, okay. sometimes you get passionate, sometimes you get right. cross. Okay, so Mudbound, which is, um, it's a Netflix release. It has, uh, also, there is a theatrical opening as well. It's um, a 40-set uh, drama set in Mississippi, co-written and directed by Dee Rees, adapted from the novel by Hilary Jordan. Um, it's a very powerful and very poetic and very well-made piece of work. Um, I've got to, It's quite hard to take a clip from it that sort of sums up what the movie is like. The film, you hear voices from several characters. You see, the, you see, it's one of those films in which you see the film from loads of different perspectives. One of the key characters in it is Carrie Mulligan as Laura. Here is a little bit of her voiceover. Violence is part and parcel of country life. You're forever being assailed by dead things, dead mice, dead rabbits. Dead possums. You find them in the yard. You smell them rotten under the house. And then there are the creatures you kill for food. Chickens, hogs, deer, frogs, squirrels, pluck, skin, disembowel, debone, fry, eat, start again, kill. I learned how to stitch up a bleeding wound, load and fire a shotgun, reach into the womb of a heaving sow to deliver a breech piglet. My hands did these things, but I was never easy in my mind. She's good. She is, and I think weirdly that kind of sums up the strangely poetic tone of the film. So she's Laura, who marries Henry McCallum, played by Jason Clarke, despite the fact that actually she seems to be... Um, much more uh, fired up by Garrett Hedlund's Jamie, who is kind of a much more glamorous brother. He's in Europe flying bombers in World War II. Henry buys a farm and starts working the land. That was what she was talking about whenever I think of the, you know, the farm I think of, I dream in brown and I think of, of mud. And his paths cross with that of sharecroppers, Hat, played by Rob Morgan, and Florence, uh, played by Mary J. Blige. And they have a son, Roncel, who is also off fighting in Europe. So there are these two different family stories happening with kind of comparable intertwining narratives. And what happens is that the stories interweave in and out of the personal and political conflict that occurs during the course of the narrative. Um, it happens very proud of his sharecropper status. His family have dreams of independence. But then as their son discovers whilst he's away uh, in Europe that he says he was away fighting and, uh, you know, whilst he was in Europe being greeted by, you know, cheers and crowds. But when he gets back to America, very, very little has changed. So they've defeated the Nazis, but he comes back to America. He comes back to Mississippi where characters like Pappy McAllen, who is the father 
in the McAllen family, who is a, an old school racist bigot, uh, represents a still powerful voice uh, in, in Mississippi and who in his first encounter with Ron Soloff, he comes back a war hero, is to not allow him to walk out of the front door of the local store, but insisting that he walks out the back door, saying things like, I don't know what they let you do in Europe, but here, but you're in Mississippi now, boy. And so the film, therefore, is a story about, you know, a political story on the one hand and a personal story on the other hand, which finds the story of these two young men, both of whom go and fight, both of whom then come back to the home that they have left and both find themselves discontented and uh, and outsiders in that world. There is a lovely conversation that they have at one point in which Jamie says, you know, uh, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but sometimes I wish I was back in the war. And the film is beautifully shot. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really beautiful film to look at. It's beautifully shot by um, uh, Rachel Morrison, the uh, cinematographer. As I said, it's a Netflix production, so an awful lot of people will see it on the small screen. I know now seeing things on a small screen is very different to what seeing things on a small screen used to be. But I have to say, I thought it was a film that really sort of demanded uh, cinematic viewing. It has genuine sort of historical epic sweep. It has a brace of really good performances. I mean, it's, it's very much an ensemble cast and the cast are, you know, absolutely uh, on point. But it also has this so this sense of poetry, this sense of, I mean, it's, it feels like a cinema, it feels like a cinematic film. It has that, that, that thing that, you know, properly made cinema has that you get swept up in the poetry of the images, of the music, of the dialogue, of the of the choreography of what's happening on screen. There are scenes in it that are very distressing. There are scenes in it that are very tough and very grim and very violent. But there's also a, a real tenderness and lifeblood flowing all the way through it. I thought it was a very, very impressive piece of work. It's called Mudbound. You mentioned another film which had uh, I think was in, was Netflix funded and Okja. I think was, was it Okja? It, maybe but it was shown at Cannes and then yeah. it got booed Oh, the, and it got controversial and booed because of the fact that the Mayerowitz stories because they felt that some of the critics thought this isn't a proper film okay so the the, the short version of it is this um, I just wonder whether this is something we're going to see more of well this is being touted definitely as an awards contender it is getting a cinematic release and it, people are talking about it for Academy Awards um, the, the, what happened in Cannes just in the 30 seconds we got before the half past what happened in Cannes was that there were films in Cannes that were not going to have theatrical releases and they were in competition. And a lot of people, particularly in France, where they're very, very protective of the cinematic space, said Cannes is a cinema festival, you shouldn't have this kind of thing. So what Cannes has now done is that they've, re they've changed the rules. They are still able to show films which are primarily... Uh, home releases, but they cannot be in competition unless they have what the Cannes Film Festival defines as a proper cinematic release. And bear in mind, in France, a proper cinematic release means a very large window between the film being shown in cinemas and the film being shown at home. And that's the key. So they will no longer be able to compete in the Cannes Film Festival. And that's largely to do with the fact that France as a country is very protective of its cinema space in a way that some other countries aren't. So would this be allowed... In, it wouldn't, by the sound of it, if it's well. This, but Cannes is way, way back. This is this is being touted as a big awards contender, okay. and and rightly so. As I said, I mean, it's it it, it it will be probably largely seen on Netflix, but it is playing in cinemas as well. And it's called it's called Mudbound. Mudbound. TV movie of the week uh, about to be selected. Our long list of the best films on subscription feed television. 
subscription uh, fee television. Yeah, that's right. You have to pay a fee. You have to fee to, to get the subscription. It's posted on our Facebook page at <laughs> facebook.com slash Kermode Mayo, capital K, capital N. Gordon Winter says, terrific set of films this week, with several I'll be recording for later viewing, despite the presence of aliens, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Theory of Everything, Badlands, and When Marnie Was There, I will go for I Wish, which was my favourite film from 2011. Hopefully it'll be Mark's pick too. Chris Moody, quality right through this. Cliffhanger is a terrific guilty pleasure. Badlands is as good a way to spend 95 minutes as you'll find. The Theory of Everything is fantastic. I'll be opting for the two Japanese films, neither of which I've seen but have been on my watch lists for some time. And I reckon Mark will choose When Marnie Was There. Uh, James Beckingham, I love a few good men, but I don't think Mark can handle the truth. Oh, he'll choose when Marnie was there. (laughs) And Richard Owen Jones, in a week when the disappointing box office returns of Blade Runner 2049 has brought into question the viability of intelligent and grown-up blockbusters. I hope Mark chooses Inception. I can't think of a finer example of a hugely successful blockbuster in recent years that wasn't afraid to credit its audience with a brain than this Nolan masterpiece. One of the best of the Nolans, in fact. One of the best of the Nolans, exactly. Uh... Other perhaps than Dunkirk. Thank you, Richard. What is our TV movie of the week? Actually, you know what? What? I think I'm going to... You changed your mind? I have. I'm just looking at the list and I, you know, I mean, I absolutely love I Wish. I think it's brilliant. But because because the other ones in cinemas at the moment, I'm going to go for the original, well, the, the Sydney Lumet Murder on the Orient Express from 1974, which is at 20 past one in the afternoon on Sunday on ITV3. I don't think I've ever ventured into the warm waters of ITV3 before. I don't know. It's, well, it's, it's amazing that it's not showing Lewis or Morse because that's the only thing that they seem to show. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, they are showing Murder on the Orient Express, the uh, Sydney Lumet version from 1974. And I'm going to choose that because we talked about it when we were talking to uh, Chuckles. And uh, I do think it's. I, I remember seeing that film and liking it very much when it came out. And I remember seeing the new Murder on the Orient Express and thinking oh, it's a similar feeling of a, a, a pleasure that I got from them both. So, so that's the original. Just um, well, it is. The, it is a version of yes. it. Yes. I mean, it's, there are there are there are versions before that. Miriam in Oxford. At 20 years old, I can still count on fewer than 10 fingers the number of times I've been to the cinema. I'm aware that this is unusual and keen to avoid the plethora of looks. I've been given upon letting that slip. I have, in fact, only been to the cinema eight times and I've embraced my friend's attempts to take me to the big screen and, as such, accompanied them to see Murder on the Orient Express. This is not the, not the one you're just talking about. The new one. Yes. Yes. I spent the film holding my breath, marvelling at the camera shots, especially the use of mirrors and reflections, and the exploration of Poirot's challenged views of justice, and even shedding a few tears. In short, as the credits began to roll and the lights came up, I was ready to spend the next few days rhapsodising with said friends about the film, which I'd thoroughly enjoyed. At which point my friend stretched and said, ''Oh my goodness, that was so bad. It was terrible.'' And I was stunned. She criticised really? the, the opening sequence, scenes outside the train, alterations to the plot, the representation of Poirot's character and, of course, the moustache. It was murder of murder. It left me wondering if, given the fact that I still find a cinema experience incredibly intense and often overwhelming, I had overestimated the quality of the film and was pleased to hear you admiring many of the things I loved about it. Yes, although I do know that some critics particularly disliked it. I think there was a very sniffy review in uh, in The Guardian, um, but Peter was not keen on it at all. I know other critics have, have not fallen for its charms, um, but I also know... You know, critics, Simran Hans, for example, who, you know, liked it very much. I think, I think that 
there is a healthy divide in the reactions. It is a film which has, you know, some people are a champion, some people don't like it. It's quite nice when that happens. I mean, one of the, the things with Justice, not, yes, Justice League is people are already saying, oh, the critics are all ganging up on it. Um, well, it, it's just that most people don't think it's very good. It is often more interesting when a film sort of, you know, divides reactions. Uh, and that's Murder on the Orient Express, which is uh, currently number two. And the uh, the other version, which Mike was talking about, is on ITV3 and is the TV it, movie it of the week. It is the TV movie of the week. It's on ITV3 at 20 past one in the afternoon on Sunday. I love the fact they literally write it out in longhand now. Because A perfect they, Sunday lunch kind of film. It is, film. yeah. Uh, so it's uh, 19 minutes to four. What else is new? So Good Time, which is a New York thriller directed by Josh and Benny Safdie, who made Daddy Long Legs and Heaven Knows What. We reviewed Heaven Knows What on the programme a couple of years ago. And I talked about it being a, uh, a, a film which was a very sort of realistic and gritty experience, but also a film which was quite hard to get into because it essentially involved you spending a lot of time in the in the company of characters who were massively unsympathetic. Now, in the case of this, this stars uh, Robert Pattinson as Constantine Connie Nikas. At the beginning of the film, we see him essentially breaking his brother Nick, played by Benny Safdie, out of a therapy session. Um, and uh, he rescues him, saying, stop asking him these questions, stop asking him th- these questions. And uh, he takes his brother, and he takes his brother off as an accomplice on a heist, a rather poorly thought-out heist, which rather, you know, expectedly, pretty soon explodes in the brother's face. Next thing, Nick finds himself first in prison and then in hospital, and Connie is scheming another way to rescue his brother from another situation. It becomes absolutely clear that he has somehow decided that his mission is to, in inverted commas, to rescue his brother from this terrible situation that he's in and show him another kind of life, show him a good time by getting involved in all these, these scams. The film plays out over, I mean, it's basically the course of 24 hours, but a huge amount of it plays over over the course of one restless night in which things go from bad to worse as Connie attempts to rescue his brother, ends up instead accidentally teaming up with an ex-con called Ray and becoming involved in a completely ludicrous and increasingly frightening scheme to retrieve a uh, a pop bottle full of uh, hallucinogens that has apparently been hidden at an Adventureland fairground. The film is interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, there have been a lot of reviews saying this is the film in which Robert Pattinson demonstrates that he really is you know, a brilliant actor, in which he loses his celebrity status. I mean, a lot of it is shot on streets in which it's evident that, although they have permits, they have permits for some of it, permits for, for more of it than they have for a lot of their other films, but it's evident that Pattinson is being able to move through crowds with the aren't necessarily clocking in what he is. And a lot of critics have said, well, this is the film in which he shows his mettle. My own feeling about it is this. I think Robert Pattinson has always been great. I loved Robert Pattinson in, in the Twilight movies. I thought Robert Pattinson was really interesting in uh, Lost City of Zed. I think, you know, we've had him on the programme talking about other projects in which he... The idea that somehow he's suddenly surprising everybody by being a great actor is a bit of is I think a bit of a, a strange situation. And he tells us more about the people who are writing that stuff. Exactly. Right? I mean, for me, the revelation was from the Safties, whose movies in the past I have admired but haven't completely clicked with. In the case of this, I completely clicked with it. It had a really terrific sense of location. I mean, you could you could feel and smell the you know, the streets of Queens and Brooklyn. It's shot in thirty five mil, um, which has been according to the cinematographer, battered and tortured in terms of its exposure. So when you have the nighttime scenes, the exterior scenes, they have this kind of crepuscular half-light that almost feels like in the induced documentary of something like French Connection or 
Panic in Needle Park, which I think is definitely uh, an inspirational touchstone. Um, the directors have also cited Martin Scorsese's After Hours, as although that's, I think that's a very different feeling of film, because that is a film which is, broadly speaking, a kind of a, a, a comic film. In the case of this, there are elements of tragedy comedy in it, but it is... It's it's a thriller which has sort of absurdist comedy in it. It has a pulsating, really pulsating um, electronic score by Daniel Lubitin, who was told by the directors uh, to have a look at uh, the Tangerine Dream score from Sorcerer, which, as you probably know, is currently on uh, release. And there is are it, certain Mark? it is. I, know, I, should, I should have mentioned it. You can hear echoes of that kind of circling semitonal pulse theme that Tangerine Dream using that in the score for Good Time. But the score for Good Time is so front and centre. It's like it's occasionally, you know, it has this kind of analogue sounding distortion to it. You can hear the edges of everything cracking. It's like being right in the mind of the central character. The filmmaking itself has this sort of febrile sense of agitation. It's a film which moves at a running pace and goes from one increasingly, you know, ridiculous and, and uh, absurd situation to another, tumbling and running and falling as we follow the schemes of the central character played by Connie. It's also a film which it's kind of bookended by moments of stillness, which emphasise that sort of sense of frenetic feverishness from which the rest of the film is concocted it's it's a this is a word i use a lot but it is very tactile you can you can feel the environments you can feel the textures you can smell the streets you 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 kind of feel yourself being pulled along by this character and what's really fascinating about it is that the central character, played by Robert Pattinson, is massively unsympathetic. He's devious, he's a schemer, he's a chancer, he ha behaves with apparently no care for uh, the fates of anybody else around him with the exception of his brother. He is completely reckless. He is hugely incompetent, and one of the reasons that things keep going wrong is through sheer incompetence. And yet the film makes you keep pace with him and doesn't alienate you. And that's a very, very hard trick to do. I mean, the the, the filmmakers have a very non-judgmental style, which sort of presents... I mean, I think it presents... They've talked about the best Pulp Fiction being amoral, although I don't think the film is amoral. I think what the, what the film does is map out its characters, map out its situation, and assume that the audience is intelligent enough to make its own decisions about the morality or otherwise of what's playing out. And I thought it was really, really, really well done, really well judged. Uh, there, It is an absolutely full-on experience. You come out of it feeling really breathless and really knocked about. And yes, Pattinson is is brilliant in it. That's not the surprise. The surprise is that the film is as good as it is. And particularly when you have a film in which you're referring to films, which I love. I mean, any filmmaker who will cite Paddock and Needle Park and will cite, you know, Sorcerer and... Should I know Panic in Needle Park? It's an Al Pacino film. Um, Kitty Wynn, uh, Jerry Schatzberg, early 1970s. It was a film that was very controversial. I think it was banned for a while. It's a film about drug addicts and, um, and about drug addiction. And, I mean, it's a really... It's a, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking film. It's a tough watch. But you should see it, actually. It's really, really good. OK, I'll... Um... Ignore that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh... <laughs> Uh, Freddie Thompson, 
Good Time is a grim and grimy whirlpool of survival and ego. The audience That's has... a great phrase. I, will, I am going to steal that and that pass in, it off as my own. Put that in your paper. Yeah. The audience has no choice but to sit slack-jawed and follow our pats through his turbulent underworld, living minute to minute, leeching from person to person. We question his motivations and condemn his choices, but a small niggling part of us urges him on, unable to turn away. The film features brilliant performances all round, with the weight of the drama on the magnificent R-Pats, but a special mention should go to Buddy Duress, yes. who stole the show with charm, dark humour and chilling realism. And, of course, is was the discovery of Heaven Knows What. What? Well, I said... It- I mentioned that we reviewed Heaven Knows What a couple of years ago, and he was the the, the breakout star of that film. With a throbbing, chaotic soundtrack, terrific cast and cinematography full of graphic neon gloom, Good Time is a Tour de Force and will likely remain kicking around my head with my other favourite films of the year. Stay for the end credits to hear... uh, Yeah, to hear the Iggy Pop song, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And that's from Freddie Thompson. Freddie, thank you very much. And that, I suspect, is where we've just heard our movie of the week. But we'll have to wait, of course, for about another nine minutes to find that out. But I can't see Justice League rifling that particularly. However, we haven't heard everything. Film stars don't die in Liverpool, which is um, an adaptation of uh, a memoir of the same name written by Peter Turner, which I confess I haven't read, directed by Paul McGuigan, uh, written by Matt Greenhouse. Is he pronounced Greenhouse? Green, H-A-L-G-H, and I'm sorry, my pronunciations of names are so terrible, whose CV includes things like Control and Look of Love, tells the story of a relationship between former Hollywood star Gloria Graham, played by Annette Benning, and aspiring actor Peter Turner, played by Jamie Bell. We start in 1991 with Graham in a theatre dressing room uh, in the UK, surrounded by memorabilia of the past collapsing. In Liverpool, Peter gets a phone call. He's told it's your Gloria. She's ill. He goes to see her and she says, can you take me to Liverpool? I could get better there. So he brings her home. He brings her back to the family home. Mum and dad played by Julie Walters and Ken Cranham. We then flash back to Primrose Hill a few years before and we start to see their relationship begin when it turns out that he's in a building and she's the new tenant. Here's a clip. Hey, you're the next door guy, right? Which makes you the girl next door. Hey, have you seen the movie Saturday Night Fever? Uh, yeah, I've seen it. Actually, I saw it three times. Oh, so you like disco dancing? Oh, God. Um, I like drunk dancing. Oh, so if I make you a drink, you come into my room and hassle with me? I need a partner for my dance class. I mean, if you fix me a drink, I'll come in and clean your bathroom. Isn't that a great line? It's good, yeah. So I think you hear in that something of the intimacy which starts to play out for the rest of the film. There's all this stuff about the landlady says, oh, she, you know, she's a famous actress. She was a famous actress, always played the tart, she says sort of you know, dismissively. Later, a barman seeing her says, oh, she was a proper, you know, proper film star. She was. They become friends. They go to the pictures to go and see uh, Alien. And uh, the, the chestburster scene from Alien. And then, and she says, yeah, but it's when the strange things pop out from between your legs that things get complicated. And he suddenly realises that she's got a past. She's got, you know, previous husbands. She's got kids. She's got an entire life behind her. Her ambition is to play Juliet. And when she first mentions this, he says, don't you mean the nurse? And she says, is that how you see me, as an old woman? The real beauty of the film is that he doesn't, and neither does the film, and neither do we. You heard in that 
click, that sort of sing-song voice that she has, which is a little bit like Marilyn Monroe, that fabulous air of mystery and uh, an intrigue. And what happens is you see these characters fall in love and you see the tenderness between them and you see the intimacy of their relationship. And it, it should be said that it's great to see a mainstream movie which reverses the gender age roles and doesn't make a big deal about it. That isn't primarily what it's about. It's also great to see a movie which isn't uh, worried about uh, the sexuality of its central characters, which isn't in any way sort of... Uh, uh, judgmental or defining about how people should uh, should lead their lives. Um, the director, way, way back in his CV, made, and you remember this, made Gangster Number 1, which is a film which basically introduced me to the work of uh, uh, Paul Bettany, of whom I'm a huge fan. And Gangster Number 1 I've seen several times over the years, and it's a film which really, really stands up. I really like it. It's you know, it's it's complex and it's got real visual layers and it's got a terrific ensemble cast, many of whom some people were seeing for the for the first time. There are scenes in film stars don't like die in Liverpool that reminded me of the of the of the heart of a filmmaker like Terence Davis. There's a lovely scene when Jamie Bell goes to the cinema to watch one of her old movies and it's playing in black and white. And there's a shot when you the camera looks at him and he's looking at the screen and there's this look of wonder on his face, which really reminded me of Terence Davis. And you know how much I love yes, Terence Davis. I seem to remember the fact. That I have mentioned that before. Have I mentioned that Sorcerer's on re-release, incidentally? Yeah. There are scenes in America which fill in the backstory with small but really sort of finely judged performances from the likes of Vanessa Redgrave and Francis Barber, people who have very, you know, little compact roles and yet you know, say little but say so much. And the film really won me over. I was, I thought there was such warmth, such wit, such compassion, such generosity of spirit about it that I found myself completely swept along it's an ensemble cast i mean yes it's a cast with you know two big stars and i think people are talking about awards for annette benning as they were talking about I me mean, the last time we were talking about this annette benning for 20th century women everybody yes. was saying well you know huge uh, huge awards accolades are due to her it's an it's a dynamite performance i mean it's she just appears to get better and it's a great performance but let's not forget how great jamie bell is the attention to period detail is beautifully observed it's, there's something really annoying about seeing films in which the period detail, they get it wrong. But in this, it's really done well. There are a couple of beautiful transitions, very, very cinematic transitions of characters going through a door that will then open up into an entirely different spatial and temporal area. And it's it's done really nicely. It's not done like, you know, flashy or showing off. It's done because we need to get from this part of the story to this part of the story. And the two things are connected thematically. So let's figure out how we can connect them visually and that again reminded me of what it was that I love about Gangster Number One like that scene in Gangster Number One in which you see a really violent assault entirely from the point of view of the victim I thought it was a really lovely film really well made really well played and it, it completely won me over uh, Simon Burgess in Southampton uh, very much enjoyed Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool with Paul McGuick in stylized direction making good use of the Brechtian alienation device. That's been the first mention for a long time to jump backwards and forwards in the story. Annette Benning and Jamie Bell are exceptional as Gloria and Paul and they have no trouble making you believe in both the romance and the friction between the couple. Julie Walters is, well, when has Julie Walters been... been anything other than brilliant. ...is exactly what he says. Admittedly, she gets the lion's share of the comic lines, but she handles the dramatic moments just as well. If I were to criticise anything, I would say that because the screenplay is based on Paul's book, it does feel sometimes that we're getting a one-sided view of the romance that has been somewhat idealised 
uh, in his eyes. Peter's film, book. Film, pardon? Peter's book. I am just reading. Yeah, no, no, fine, 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 fine. Uh, film stars don't die in Liverpool. You got uh, three minutes. Ingrid Goes West, uh, Aubrey Plaza film. Uh, Aubrey Plaza stars as uh, an unhinged and very unhappy woman living in Pennsylvania. We first see her gate crashing a, we- a wedding and attacking the bride for not inviting her. And as she's carted off, we hear a voice saying, they're not even friends. It was just an Instagram post. Turn soon becomes apparent that she is confused Instagram and social media with real life. She is also heartbroken. She's lost her mother, who incidentally has left her some money. And while she's on the internet, she comes across this new lifestyle icon, Taylor Sloan, played by Elizabeth Olsen, who posts about her beautiful life, her beautiful husband, her beautiful food. And she comments on one of the beautiful food things, and the star writes back. So the next thing we know, Aubrey Plaza's character, Ingrid, decides to go west to go and live in California because obviously they're going to be best friends. And so very quickly she we find her walking the same streets as this person that she idolises, trying to buy the same clothes, hanging out in the same shops and the same terrible restaurants. What's your biggest emotional wound? What? It's our question of the day. Oh. <laughs> Mine's actually my relationship with my dad. <laughs> I'm good, thanks. All right. Well, in that case, welcome to Grateful Kitchen. My name's Eden. How can I nourish you today? You know, I'm actually meeting a friend for lunch here. Have you seen her? Oh, yeah, Taylor Sloan. Yeah, yeah. She comes in all the time. I know. (laughs) She was actually here like an hour ago. You said you're meeting her for lunch, or? Oh, God, I must have gotten the time wrong. So stupid. (laughs) Do you remember what she ordered? (laughs) So she then follows uh, Taylor around and somehow manages to, well, she manages to inveigle herself into into her friendship through a criminal activity. The next thing, they are BFFs and suddenly she's living this Instagram perfect life. Of course, the inspiration for this is a film directed by Matt Spice so we can see behind it something like King of Comedy. It is a film about stalking. It is a film about obsession. It is a film about the hollowness of celebrity. It is a film about the way that people post pictures of their fabulous life and if you scratch away the surface, you discover underneath it great big vacuums. It is a story about somebody on the edge of a society that they want to be part of, desperately doing anything to be part of it. It has uh, nasty twists and turns. It is funny, darkly, acerbically, scabrously funny. You're remembering King of Comedy, everything turns to kidnapping, so obviously there is a moment at which we have to crank things up. I thought it was a, a, a very darkly funny piece of work. And as the movie music is running at the end of the film, what is our movie of the week? Film stars don't die in Liverpool. There you go. A turn up, right? I think you just made that up at the last minute. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, James and Dave Franco talk the disaster artist. Now it's Drive. OK. Mm-hmm. 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 Did you, did you change your... I, I, was, Did I change my what? Change your mind, because I was fairly certain you were going to go time. for good No, time. I knew I was going to do uh, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Are you doing this on purpose now? So you're making me think. No, I loved I Good know. Time. I loved Good Time, but I also loved Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. We're on, by the way. Oh, I'm so sorry. This is, this is it. And, I'm and sorry, I didn't. I thought you were just... And that's further proof. I'm sorry. I genuinely didn't know that we were on. Did I say anything rude? Did I swear? Did I? Yes. Okay. You were Mr. Potty Mouth. Okay, there. fine. No, no, no. I, I, I genuinely... I mean, I really, really loved Good Time, and I really, really loved Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. So your favourite films were in the last 10 minutes of the show, pretty much. Yeah, but, you know, that, but, I mean, I, it, it, hey, good to mix it up. 
Mix it up. I've just been looking at our DVD of the week script. Have you? Hang on, let me get it. Let me get it because I'm. It's slightly... actually very distasteful, and it's been written. It's distasteful. Yes, for me it is because it's been written with a particular mindset. What do you mean? Uh, which is insulting, uh, and I refuse to go down the particular path that it's going to direct me. Anyway, uh, so what are you talking about? We will come to it in just a moment after this. Oh, you, sorry, do you mean the script for the your s- thing? I'm, sorry, I'm looking at the list of films and I'm thinking, no. what's disgusting about this list of films? I, I literally don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I, I'll explain in just a moment. Literally don't know. Mike Tansy uh, says, I'm a colonial commoner having recently relocated to the island of Singapore. Watching a series of still images rapidly creating the illusion of movement over here is you quite... know what you know what that's a running joke that we haven't yeah and... we haven't used for a while so Charlie we did Cal... earlier we did earlier in the show today but it hasn't really turned Charlie Kaufman would just like to say thank you it's the gift that keeps giving yeah we'd like to say thank you to him for never coming on the show <laughs> ever again <laughs> anyway it's quite an experience particularly given the climate the temperature in Singapore only varies between 25 and 35 degrees centigrade day and night summer and winter for Mark's benefit that means it's blooming hot and so for the first time in our lives we take clothes to put on in the cinema as you may be aware Singapore is a highly forward thing and regulated country highly pardon me it says highly forward thing and regulated country but he probably means highly forward thinking Oh, highly forward thinking. Okay, fine. And regulated country, including the infamous ban on chewing gum. So I can only surmise that this extends to ensuring filmgoers keep their trousers on as the air conditioning is set so high in the cinemas the day after tomorrow is actually today. Anyone foolish enough to remove their trousers... That's a good... That's a good... And it's so cold that the day after tomorrow is actually today. So anyone foolish enough to remove their trousers would risk permanent damage to their extremities due to frostbite. Sadly, it also means that it's virtually impossible to doze through dull films for fear of never waking up again. Uh, we look forward to welcoming the cruise next year. Yeah, well, we are going to... In fact, we're going to spend quite a lot of time uh, in Singapore. But this relates to uh, an, an email from a while back about a gentleman who uh, had someone take his trousers off yes, in the middle of a film because he was film. so hot. And Yeah, but, but our, our reaction to that was it doesn't matter how hot you are. You don't take your trousers off. No, or if you know, if you want to wear shorts to go to the cinema, that's yeah. okay. But or kimono, you know. Exactly, kimono my house. Good kimono my house. Album. That's very good. And what was the other great Sparks album? Uh, well, indiscreet. Um, Those were the two classic Sparks albums. Somebody posted something. I think like, number one song in heaven was pretty good, actually. But is that the name of an album or, so, yeah, or the single? Yeah, I think that's the name of the album. And also Hippopotamus, their new record's pretty good as well. Okay, I. Uh, only know uh, Kimona My House, which ha- which is the one that had the big hits on it. Yes, that uh, that was the one. I think that had Amateur Hour, and I think it had uh, Never um, This Town Never Enough for both of us. Yeah, Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth was on because oh, I don't know. I, this is fascinating for the listening it is public in Sunny. One of their favourite moments where we talk about uh, old records. But anyway, in Singapore, you don't take your trousers off you're more likely to put another pair of trousers on, on. because uh, the air conditioning is so hot. Thank you. I think we actually killed that joke. Nick? Mm-hmm. One of the many jokes. I think we... like we paid a lot of money to go out and kill that joke and take it home as a trophy. Yeah. Now, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get through this next section. Ah, Robbins just said, never turn your back on Mother Rose on propaganda. And in fact, that... I love that song. Yeah, no, so do I. 
I looked up the... I came more than you. I was in a car the other day, and I had... Uh, the good lady professor her indoors had gone to get something from the shops, and she'd said, I'm just getting one thing. So I thought, right, half an hour. And 40 minutes, it turned out. So in the 40 minutes... I did the thing that you do, which is you get out your phone, you start Googling stuff that you because you've got tucked because what else are you gonna do? And I Googled the words of never turn your back on Mother Earth. I had no idea any of literally none of the words. Yeah, well Russell Mail is not a great uh, elocutor. He doesn't really make his words very distinct. But I had no I, no idea. No idea. And then I looked up the words to surfs up. And it was like, really? Anyway, it's time to finish the uh, the podcast very shortly, I think, because we're just reminiscing about things we've looked up on the phone when our other halves go out shopping. Yeah, do you do that as well? No, I have things to do. I'm very, very ooh, very... books to write, places yes, to be. Yes, yes, yes. Can I? This is not a plot spoiler. This is, and then, then, so this is not a. This is not something that Robin has to cut out. Well, I think he'll be the judge of that. Okay, at some point in the future, yes, there may be a movie adaptation of something that you have written. Okay, it's possible. If and when that happens, mm-hmm. and if and when we haven't been taken off air by then, yes, how are you going to deal with that? I've already thought about it. Can you tell me what you've decided? Well, it would seem to me that the only way to deal with it is that obviously you will have to review it because that's what you do, right? Equally, I cannot be seen to favour anything that I'm involved with, so I will leave the studio. So basically, we'll get like Sanjeev in or somebody, somebody else. Sanjeev will... should be on standby. One of our many top friends should be on standby to come in. Edith could come in, sit in this chair just to host that. Particular... Just to, and, and their main role would be not being Simon Mayer. Yes, and I will sit out in the corridor chain-smoking the way f- nervous fathers did before children were born in old films, wondering what... An- and then I might email the show and maybe I'll get on. Maybe my views will, will, will be heard. Can I ask you genuinely, have you, have you seriously thought about this? Yes, of course I have. And, 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 I just think because I think no, no, it would be funny. It would be funny, but would it bother you if something that you, if something that you were involved in I didn't like? Uh, it would be no because I wouldn't. I the thing that I do is I'm writing but, a story. Yes, sure, that's sure. that bit. Fine. So what, you blame what, everybody else. What happens in a film is, into, you know, is yeah. who, who knows? You know, exactly. I'm sure it'll be fabulous. But you know, if you didn't like it, I would obviously be annoyed, <laughs> and I would send you an invoice <laughs> for lost earnings. <laughs> but uh, you have to you have to do an honest review. In fact, you would probably be particularly particularly honest, honest and. Because it would be my chance to be particularly honest with you. Yeah. I want you to get something made so that I can be particularly honest. It would just be a great... I would just, uh, you know, I, it would be... Uh, Crossing the streams. But it might never happen. Yeah. So we'll, we'll wait. And no, see. no, sure, sure. You know. Should we do DVD of the week? There will be... Any there, of that, will, any, will that stay in? Oh, that's, that's fine. Right. There, will, there, will, there will incidentally be a moment in which... I don't know whether I can say the film, but you and I have done a cameo in oh, a film have, yeah. as ourselves. We'll have, will we have an IMDb entry? I've already got an IMDb. Oh, I haven't got one. My daughter's got one, but I haven't got one. Have you? I bet you have. If you never, you never, your voice or nothing has ever been in a film. I don't think so. Someone's going to look it up. Oh no, they're not. They've already given. They've up. turned up. Um, this is. But, but okay, so we played ourselves. But if we've made it into, if yeah, we might not. We might not have made it into the thing. The film might not get finished. The film might not get theatrically released. Bloody bloody blah. So there's many a slip. See, I'm going to say this is Simon. Ans- Simon Amstel has a new film. Uh, oh, are we allowed to say that? I didn't well, think I've just we said it. I've oh, just, okay. Yeah. I didn't. And I, Anyway, we don't benefit from it, so... No. All right. Well, yes, but, but and, and we may not be in it anyway. Yes. But that will be interesting. 
if we have to because as you know in the past we've been quite scathing about people playing themselves in movies it might be yeah the film's called benjamin gordon ramsay yeah playing himself although that sounds wrong uh very badly Piers Morgan playing himself. Very badly. Very badly. It, it might be that we join <laughs> the ranks of people who play themselves can't even very themselves. badly. Or okay. we might be that we might be the biggest thing in the in the film. We might be the best thing in the film. Top billing. Although Top billing. I've been asked, we, ha- we weren't paid for it. We just because we do it out of the goodness of our hearts. Yeah. Because Simon Amstel's a top guy. Yes, exactly so. Anyway. Enough, Moving on. Enough self-promotion. Have you got anything out? Any books? <laughs> Nothing. Anyway, here we go. It's our DVD. When will I have time to write books? I think it's like all these films out every week. How annoying for a film it's critic terrible. that be? Yeah. DVD of the week. Yes. Hey, Mark, it's time for the DVD of the week. And there's only one choice, it says here. However, I'm not prepared to read the next paragraph because the next paragraph talks about the fact that on Monday the documentary 89 is released. It's the story of Arsenal winning the oh, title see. Fine. in 1989. And if that's... If, if really you've got... Sorry, can you say it again? What's it the story of? If that's really all you... Who? Uh, sorry, who? Exactly. Who? <coughs> Accrington Stanley <laughs> winning the Football League in 1889. And if you've got nothing better to do with your time, then that is out. So did they, did they win the league in 1989? Uh, according to this document, who did they beat? Liverpool. Okay, so they Tottenham Hotspur weren't even in the running. No, 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 no. So why are you particularly hurt by it? Because it it, it has the A word in it. <coughs> exactly. Okay. And it's written by the A word supporting people. Well, you want to read it out? Yeah. Okay, you read it out. Fine, my work is done. I'm not going to read the whole thing. From Monday, the documentary 89 is released, which tells the story of the greatest ever finish to a football season when Michael Thomas scored for Arsenal in the final minute of the final game of the season, winning 2-0 at Anfield to not only win the title after after an 18-year gap, but to end the session 19 points above Spurs. That's certainly my pick. (laughs) And where are they now? Where are they now? Where are they now? Written by Simon Poole. A collection of three Buster Keaton comedies out. Uh, Celine, uh, Julie Go Boating. That's a good film. Anyway, let's pick something proper. Go ahead. Bevan Mortimer. Surely Mark will choose 89, the dramatic story. Oh, yeah, that one. (laughs) Mark is always going on about football this, football that. He can't get enough of it. Terry Hurley says The Thing. I feel cold just watching it. The paranoia, the machismo laid bare and creature effects that... Literally put their creator, Rob Bottin, in hospital. Sorry, Mark, but for me, this is the greatest horror movie of all time. Pea soup, move over and let the exploding dog come through. Richard Walker, here's... So Rob Bottin, just... Sorry, but go on. Bottin, Rob Bottin, but it hasn't got an E on the end. It, OK, have... I'm just telling you. Carry on. Shall I say Rob Bottin? Uh, Richard Walker, here's the thing, he'll choose the thing. Personally, I'll go with the big sick. Molly Butterworth, I love the thing, but The Big Sick was one of the films of the year for me and the unusual treat of a rom-com that was actually about something. Yes. Fingers crossed it'll be Mark's choice because more people should see it. Diana Whitmill, Keaton, 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 I want joy and action and wonder and if Mark goes for anything else, he's just plain wrong. Uh, Jason Parks, I think Mark will go for The Beguiled. They should correctly point out the Don Siegel adaptation is superior. I will pick Celine and Julie Go Boating as it's one of those European films like The Conformist, Stalker and Amacord that I watch regularly and declare one of the greatest films of all time. Ghosts, pretentiousness, magic and 
Yeah. Barbe Schroeder. Barbe Schroeder, yeah. As a ghost. What's not to like? What is our DVD of the week? Well, I'm going... I mean, I love Celine and Julie Go Boating. In fact, I did an introduction for it for the BFI recently. But I'm going to choose The Big Sick because I thought it was a terrific film. It was as... The uh, listener correctly pointed out it's it's a it's a rom com that's actually about something. It is, of course, inspired by a real life story. And uh, I did an on stage thing over the summer with Richard Curtis. Uh, and Ooh. Richard Curtis, what? Oh, what? You and your friends. You got you just hang. You have a very showbiz lifestyle. Stella Street. It's and beautiful. and he said, you How know, is Richard. He's very well. He sends his love. Good. And um, which you know because you see him more than I do. Oh, yeah. And uh, and he said. As the big sick demonstrates, you know, everyone that looks around, you know, how are we going to make this sort of story work? How are we going to, well, the thing is, you know, write, write what you know and draw from real life. And then along comes the big sick and does exactly that. And he loved it. He saw it before I did. And he thought it was great. And it, it didn't let me down until I really enjoyed it. Mark, I hope you have a very, very entertaining week. You've been on top form. <coughs> you can stop. Why don't you? Go on, go on, go on. You can stop that right now. I, all around the country, everyone's going, <coughs> Arsenal. Well, some people are saying that. Yes. And, of course, this is the weekend when Arsenal are playing Spurs. So This weekend? Yes, that's right. At what time are they playing? Midday tomorrow. Ridiculous time, by the way. You don't play football at midday. OK. And w- predicted outcome? Well, I'm going to predict a draw. Probably. I, really? That's quite boring, isn't it? Yeah. Well, but, but, but it's your team. Why but, aren't you going to predict like a 9-0 win? Because I know slightly more about it than you do. Oh. It's just safer, really, just to say it'll be a draw. OK. Let me just check in with our A supporting producer. What's your score? What do you predict for the score, Simon? He's thinking about it a very long time. Two all draw. There you go. See, we're just too scared of of, of any other result. Anyway, I hope you. So, sorry, because I genuinely don't know. No. What's the significance of the outcome of the game? Is you do, do one of you go into Bragging League right. Division One? Or no, something? absolutely none. I mean, everyone. I mean, Spurs are a better team than Arsenal this season. They finished second in the last couple of years. So, uh, and Arsenal a little bit on the downward. Because you were having spiral. that conversation with Kenneth Branagh, weren't you? Because he's yeah, he's a fellow Spurs supporter. But the fact is that it's it's just bragging rights. It's North London rivalry. That's all stupid tribalism. That's all it is. Stupid tribalism. Yeah. Okay, that's the name of the new Morrissey album, I believe. It's been a whole week since we had Morrissey <laughs> mention or impression. I think it's time to leave it there. Okay. Have a very fine week. And you.